From the Shadowlands, read by Jeannie Calvar. The ninth day of the month of Sheba, 1117, somewhere four days' march into the Shadowlands. Hiruma Gakuto shielded his eyes from the piercing sun and squinted at the riverbed. We've been here before, he muttered. A hard smack. Gakuto sprawled in the dust, Hida Kiyosue glaring down at him with a red palm. Kuni Ritsuko winced but said nothing. Idiot! Kiyosue hissed at the scout. You have given our location away. Gakuto's welt traced a red line down his face. I'm going in circles, he protested. It's an illusion, you dumb goat, barked Kiyosue. You really trust what you see out here? Gakuto rubbed his eyes. Only wind stirring shriveled grass. No riverbed. No river. Kiyosue grunted in disgust. Whelps. Ritsuko silently watched her commander as he turned, fidgeting absently with the jade finger around his neck. He's never done that before, she thought. Has the Shadowlands finally gotten to him? She waited until the others followed him away from the clearing. Then she knelt beside Gakuto and lifted a bandage to wipe his face. He flinched, inched away, avoided her eyes. They were all like that. She was a kuni, a walking shroud, her face kapuki painted to fool the demons. Only the brute spared her more than a glance. The others kept her at arm's length. She was used to it. Hold still, came her steady voice. She dabbed at his cut and readied a solve. It's nothing, he said. He stared where the riverbed had been. Just a scratch. You know what a mere scratch can do out here. He swallowed. They found the cave before long. It was little more than a partially covered hole, like something a giant trapdoor spider would have dug. Ritsuko sandwiched a rat femur in her palms, whispered a prayer, and then tossed it. It pointed into the dark opening. This is the lair, she whispered. Kiyosue readied his tetsubo. Light some torches. We're going in. It was Gakuto who dared to speak, bowing. Hida-sama, we should smoke it out. If it is home, let us gather some grass. We can fight it in the light. Kiyosue slammed his tetsubo into the dirt inches from Gakuto's face. Ritsuko's jaw clenched at the resulting dust cloud. Hakiyosue slipped even a bit. Are you all cowards? Hida demanded. Since when did the crab cower at darkness? I'll go in alone if I must, and you can tell the great bear that you abandoned the hunt for the oni at his doorstep. Gakuto made to speak, but Ritsuko interrupted, her decision clear, if not easy. I'll follow, she said. Ignoring Gakuto's stunned face, she approached the commander. Kiyosue grunted. See? The kuni knows. Pale light poured from her fingers as Kiyosue was engulfed in green flame. His body fell just as the last prayer left Ritsuko's lips. 
The clearing resounded with swords leaving sheaths, but then a cough from the fallen Hida. Then another, and then... It was as if a pyre had been lit inside Kiyosue's gaping mouth. Formless black curtains poured out. From the smoke, something lunged, bony legs outstretched, reaching for Ritsuko's throat. A ward was already in her hands. Its scream was like shattering glass. Silence. Ritsuko drew back. It's gone. She smiled in spite of herself. That was easier than she'd anticipated. The others rushed past to their fallen commander. Serves him right, came a thought. He didn't deserve to lead, behaving like that. He'll live, she said. The Shadow Oni needs a living host, a mind to fill with hubris and vice. How did you know? Gakuto managed. His jade finger, she replied, cutting it free from the commander's neck. It's actually Malachite. Before, they looked at her with fear and suspicion. Now, their eyes glittered with admiration. Respect. You're their leader now, another thought came unbidden. And you'll be a better leader than that drunken brute ever was. A cold realization fell over her. Gakuto bowed. You are now in charge, Kunisama. What are your orders? Ritsuko thrust out her hands. Chain me to the tree, she said, and get another kuni. It didn't speak again until the last scout was gone. Its voice scraped the inside of her skull like an iron nail. Foolish girl, it said. I could have made you great. Foolish demon, she whispered with steel in her voice. I will make you dead. Blind Ambition by D.G. Ladderoot Read by Jeannie Calvar Otomo Sarai's hand trembled and the sake he was pouring nearly splashed out of the delicate porcelain cup. Bayushi Kachiko politely ignored the near breach of decorum. My most profuse apologies, Bayushi Dono, he said, offering the decanter so she could pour for him. I fear age is rendering me less steady than I was in my youth. But my lord, you have learned so much in your years. I should be so lucky as to glean merely a fraction of your wisdom. She finished pouring for them both, but as she reached for his cup, her kimono slipped slightly, exposing just a hint of her throat and shoulder. Sarai tensed across the table, and they both picked up their cups. As they sipped in silence, Sarai, the Otomo family daimyo, glanced around Kachiko's audience chamber, taking in the stark decor. A shoji screen depicting sparse cherry blossoms. A wall hanging adorned with a quote from Bayushi's lies, The best mask is no mask at all. 
in scarlet ink under the scorpion mon, and a red face in a mahogany side-table holding a single white carnation. Even the lanterns cast a ruddy light through the room. Now, Otomodono, you wish to discuss something? Yes, I have some concerns regarding relations among the great clans. Kachiko nodded. The Otomo, one of the imperial families of Rokugan, existed to sow dissent among the clans, preventing them from ever uniting against the emperor. Her next words were, therefore, exactly what Sarai was not expecting to hear. Ah, so you are concerned they have been overly strained? Sarai blinked. In truth, no. Relations among the crane, the dragon, the phoenix, and the unicorn seem to be growing ever more amicable. A coalition may be forming. Oh, my! That is a concern. Yet I am certain you have already devised a way of ensuring such a thing does not come to pass. Sarai leaned forward. Indeed. Otomo spouses are married into each of these clans in relatively senior positions. Their influence shall lesser the likelihood of such a coalition. The Emperor is lucky that you have such assets at your command, Sarai Dono, she said softly, using his first name to underscore her trust in, and desired familiarity with, the Otomo Lord. I know now to have the Scorpion come to you, should we ever need your help. Kachiko reached out and fractionally adjusted the vase holding the carnation. Our time together means so much to me, Sir Idono. A soft scratching at the door interrupted her. This must be urgent, she said, looking disappointed. When it comes to certain guests, I am to be disturbed only if it is absolutely essential. Frustration tightened Sarai's face, but he simply nodded. Of course, a matter urgent to the imperial adviser must be addressed without delay. Rising from the cushion, he bowed to Kachiko. Until our next meeting, Bayushi Dono. Kachiko stood and returned the bow with a smile. I look forward to it, Atomodono. Sarai gave a lingering look, then moved to the door and opened it. A man whose dark kimono bore the mon of the Shisoro family moved aside. He bowed deeply as Sarai departed, then entered and slid the door closed. Lady Bayushi, I come bearing important news, he said, loud enough for the Otomo to overhear, and bowed again. Kachiko corrected her kimono and glanced at the carnation. Takeru had been watching the flower surreptitiously, waiting for her to give the signal. She waited a few more moments to ensure that they were truly alone. I would hear your thoughts regarding Sarai, but I must prepare to meet with the Emperor this afternoon. Of course, my lady. However, there is one matter I believe I should bring to your attention now. You are my most trusted retainer, Takeru-san. Go on. Your confidence honors me, Bayushi Dono. Earlier today I had occasion to play go with my friend the esteemed unicorn ambassador, Ide Tadaji. 
His clan intends to petition the throne, proposing a new law declaring Toshi Rambo an imperial city. This would prevent further attacks on it by any clan lacking official imperial sanction. Interesting. And under what pretext? Concern for the common people of Toshirambo, who have been subjected to many years of conflict, the unicorn wished that suffering alleviated. How very compassionate of them. I assume the unicorn seeks support from our clan? Indeed, Lady Bayushi, the unicorn ambassador claims significant support for this petition already, but the backing of the Scorpion clan would be most beneficial. I bade him approach the Scorpion clan champion regarding this matter. Kachiko nodded. Very well. Now, if that is all, I must prepare to meet our glorious emperor. Of course, my lady, Takeru said, bowing deeply. After he left, Kachiko lingered. She did have a great deal to do before meeting the emperor, but Takeru's report could change things. The unicorn concern for the welfare of Hyman's farmers was charming, but predictable. There undoubtedly was, however, more to it. She looked at the sake she had shared with Sarai. Relations among the crane, the dragon, the phoenix, and the unicorn seemed to be growing ever more amicable. The old man had been right in his assessment. Self-importantly irrelevant, but right nonetheless. There will be no alliance of consequence permitted between the crane and the unicorn she'd told her husband when last they met in the Imperial Gardens. And yet, the unicorn were obviously trying to do something to benefit the crane, who currently held Toshirambo despite the best efforts of the lion to dislodge them. Under the unicorn's proposed law, crane control over the city, and their lasting claim to it, would be dramatically strengthened. What did the unicorn stand to gain from this? If Toshi Rambo was denied to them, the lion would likely deploy their full might against the unicorn out of sheer frustrated spite. Ah, of course. Shinjo Alton Sarnai's failed marriage with the lion would likely lead to war anyway. And while Crane military support would be useful to the unicorn, their support in the imperial court, mitigating the political scandal of the unicorn champion's broken betrothal, could be more potent than a whole legion of Bushi. It would cost the crane some of their diminishing stock of political capital, but if it solidified their grip on Toshirambo, it would be worth it. Kachiko followed the strands of threat and opportunity, a spider's web of possibilities spinning outward from the unicorn petition. The unicorn at war with the lion, diverting their attention from the opium trade in Ryoko Wari Toshi? The phoenix, infuriated by the unicorn's use of gaijin magic and bolstered by Asawa Kaede's marriage to their new champion, allying with the lion, weakening their current alliance with the crane. The crane, emboldened in the courts, growing their political influence. Doji Hitaru, her perfect face framed by delicate strands of white hair and lit by a bright smile, her hands in kachikos, Strong, but still warm and soft. Kachiko's eyes narrowed on the carnation. There will be no alliance of consequence permitted between the crane and the unicorn. Kachiko abruptly strode out of her audience chamber. A servant hovered near the entrance, 
waiting to clean the room. She stopped and gazed at the man, who knelt with his forehead pressed to the floor. "'The welfare of peasants,' she snapped. "'Why did the unicorn even care?' The servant said nothing, of course, and Kachiko continued on her way. Bayushi Kachiko paused outside the temple of Hante no Kami. She stood on a long bridge that rested on the shoulders of paired statues, each the likeness of a past emperor. Water lilies and lotus blossoms dotted the placid water below. Here in the Forbidden City, the imperial heart of Otosanuchi, there was none of the noise and bustle of the surrounding streets. Serenity enveloped the temple like a silken shroud, which was why the emperor used it to escape the simmery tension of the imperial court. Instead, it was her duty to bring the matters of the court to him, and pressing matters there were. Kachiko carried on, acknowledging the bows offered by the Sapun honor guard, the Miharu, flanking the temple's entrance. A young Mia attendant led her through the interior of the temple, which was a surprisingly small and sparse structure, considering its revered purpose. They stopped at a plain door, flanked by two more of the vigilant Miharu. The Mia slid the door open and stepped back. Kachiko entered and, in one smooth movement, dropped and touched her forehead to the polished floor. Rise, Bayushi Kachiko-san, a soft voice said, and join me for tea. Kachiko returned to her feet and faced the speaker, his august imperial majesty, Hante Thirty-Eighth, emperor of Rokugan. I am honored to do so, your majesty, she said, taking her place opposite the emperor at a small table set with a tea service and a game of go. As always, she was struck by the bare simplicity of the room. The table, a pair of comfortable cushions, and a trio of unadorned shoji screens. She understood the emperor was glad to escape the pomp and ceremony that surrounded his every movement, but this was barren even to her reserved tastes. Even the Hante's wardrobe was plain, a green kimono embroidered with the imperial chrysanthemum in gold. While a servant poured tea, she examined the go-board upon which a game was underway. Tell me, Bayushi-san, the emperor said, noting her interest. How do you believe this game will progress? Kachiko considered the arrangement of the stones. Assuming neither player makes an error, and the optimum placement of his stones, then, after he places his sixth stone, White will have an insurmountable lead. The Emperor nodded. I quite agree. What do you have to tell me today, Bayushi-san? Kachiko began addressing various matters of the court with the Emperor, all of them important, none of them vital. The Emperor listened, occasionally commenting or asking questions, and then, if appropriate, rendering a decision. When she brought up the matter of lion and crane tensions around Toshirambo, and the death of the Lion Clan champion, Okoto Arasu, the Emperor frowned. An unfortunate situation. It has already cost the lives of many loyal samurai. Kachiko waited for the Emperor to go on, and he did but to other matters. The unicorn petition could be pressing, 
but she wasn't prepared to bring it to the emperor's attention. Not until she had discussed it with Shoju. They continued their discussion, and Kachiko studied the emperor as though she were looking at him for the first time. The man had occupied the chrysanthemum throne for almost as long as she'd been alive. He was, by definition, divine, a scion of Tengoku, the celestial heavens. He could trace his lineage to Lady Sun herself. For all her pragmatism, Kachiko had never doubted this. But for the second time today, her thoughts returned to her conversation with Shoju in the gardens, after he had mentioned the Kami Hante, the first emperor. Many Hante emperors had come and gone in the meantime, None have enjoyed the favor of heaven as clearly as the first. And this one, the 38th, Shoju had stopped her, preventing her from saying what she had been meaning to. This one, the 38th, might have lost the favor of heaven entirely. Blasphemy, treason. And yet, if this emperor was infused with the righteous power of Tengoku, why was he drawn and tired? his hair fading to gray, his eyesight failing such that documents had to be written in ever-larger script. Is there more, Bayushi-san? Kachiko realized silence had fallen and looked thoughtful. Yes, Your Majesty. Yasuki Takodono has requested a private audience with you. He advocates for more imperial support for the Crab Clan to bolster their defense on the Carpenter Wall. The emperor sighed. He will prattle on about jade and rice and sending imperial legions. Can we not simply accede to his request? We could, your majesty, if not for shortages throughout the empire. The crane, who normally have ample surpluses of rice, continue to struggle with the damage done by the tsunami to their fields. Their lack leaves no buffer against more far-reaching scarcity. And as for jade, existing mines are near exhaustion, while no new ones have been found to replace them. The emperor's frown hardened. This, this one, one, the thirty-eighth, might have might lost, lost the favor, the favor of, heaven of heaven entirely. What do you suggest I tell him, then? The emperor asked at last. Kachiko considered the question, but the politician in her saw an opportunity. If I may suggest, your majesty... The Yasuki lord could meet with your surrogate regarding this, sparing your having to deal with such specific matters. I would suggest Kakita Yoshidono. Meeting with the imperial chancellor attaches the weight of the imperial court to the issue. Kachiko waited. The weight of the imperial court would mean nothing to Taka, who would just be angry that he wasn't meeting with the emperor himself. But if there was no good news to offer, it might as well be Yoshi who said so. And anything that kept the Chancellor busy left him less likely to interfere in other matters. Very well, the Emperor said. The Chancellor shall meet with Taka. Is there anything else? Yes, Your Majesty, she said. The final matter is that of the Emerald Champion. Yes. Baishi showed you touched on the matter as we dined last evening. This was our game of go. The emperor gave Kachiko a keen look. He was playing white. Was the emperor annoyed by the game? 
she would need to shape her next words accordingly. Before she could respond, he waved a dismissive hand. I have become quite used to Shoju defeating me, my lady. As for the Emerald Champion, that is a grave affair. His funeral procession will not be forgotten any time soon. Indeed, the whole of the Empire still mourns his loss, but I am referring to the Emerald Championship itself. The office must be filled as soon as possible. There are too many contentious issues affecting the Empire to leave it empty. This is much what Shouju said. He and I are of similar mind. Accordingly, I recommend that you appoint a new Emerald Champion immediately, filling the office in an acting capacity, until the customary tournament can be held to determine the permanent incumbent. I further recommend that Bayushi Aramoro, the esteemed brother of Bayushi Shouju, be appointed to the role. You recommend a scorpion? How surprising! Kachiko offered a self-deprecating smile. I realize it hardly seems an unbiased choice. However, the scorpion are, thank the fortunes, not currently embroiled in the complex and demanding issues distracting the other clans. The crab need every soldier on the wall. The lion and the crane are consumed by their disagreement over Toshirambo, and they should resolve that before attempting to adopt an empire-wide outlook. Haramoro, on the other hand, would bring the broad perspective and objectivity the position demands. It is unusual to appoint a new emerald champion. The custom is to fill the role through the tournament. Unusual, but not unprecedented, Hante the Third, may he bask in the glory of heaven forever, did so. Admittedly, the circumstances were different. The incumbent committed seppuku in protest, dying by his own hand rather than carrying out an execution. But the need of the empire was no greater than it is now, and perhaps even less. The emperor stared at the go-board. Kachiko waited, her gaze also on the game. Many considered Go an exercise in martial thinking, but to Kachiko, the game more closely described the behavior of people. Knowing the two players of this one as well as she did, she could readily predict the game's likely outcome. Just as Shoju was six stones from victory, her own experience with the Hante told her that her succession of courtly moves should lead to Aramoro being named Emerald Champion, and once he held that position in an acting capacity, it shouldn't be difficult to have it become permanent. No. Kachiko looked up from the game. No, the Emperor repeated. The new Emerald Champion will be selected by the customary tournament, not by appointment. You may inform the esteemed Imperial Herald to undertake the necessary preparations. Kachiko stared, almost shook her head. Assuming, Assuming neither, neither player, player made, made an, an error, error and, the and the optimate, optimate placement of his, of his stones, stones, this was not. Do you have any questions, Bayushi-san? Kachiko's mind raced through a dozen scenarios. At last she said, I do not, Your Majesty. Your wisdom, your will. 
As she departed the temple of Hante no Kami, Kachiko paused again on the bridge. She didn't look at the flowering plants or the placid water this time. Instead, she looked at the statues supporting the sweeping arc of the bridge. Eighteen pairs of them, the first thirty-six Hante emperors of Rokugan. When the current emperor died, the bridge would be redesigned to accommodate his likeness and that of his father and predecessor. I am referring to the Emerald Championship itself. The office must be filled as soon as possible. There are too many contentious issues affecting the Empire to leave it empty. But that was exactly what the Emperor had chosen to do. He'd made an entirely unexpected move, an uncharacteristic one, an error even, throwing the game into chaos. She needed to consider her own move in response. For a moment, Kachiko looked at the place where the statue of Hante, the 38th, would stand once he was dead. Then she turned and started back to the Imperial Palace, her pace measured but determined. Service and Sacrifice, written by Mari Murdoch, read by Jeannie Calvar. Ikoma Ujiaki waded through a boisterous river of lion bushi, courtiers, and shiginja, thronging the sake house. The scents of wine and perfume choked the air as the serving girls floated between tables, bowing between passes of porcelain carafes. Ujiaki spied a lone samurai tucked into a corner, her blank face undoubtedly a mask. He knelt on the cushion beside the low table, arraying himself opposite her, and gave a polite nod as an apology for his intrusion. Akoto Motoko-san, he cleared his throat, surveying the battlefield of empty sake bottles crowding the table. You seem distracted from the festivities. Are you fretting for Akoto Ue's nuptials tomorrow? Or dreading, perhaps? The retired sensei did not reply, but merely gritted her teeth. Ujiaki followed her gaze to the sake bottle between them, which was painted with small cranes circling the kanji for grace. He called the servant to their table. Hatsuko, he growled, but avoided the rudeness of actually pointing at the bottle. A different bottle. Now. He thought he saw a flash of a knowing smile on the serving girl's lips, but the immediate innocence of her apology smothered it. My deepest apologies, Ujiaki-sama. I beg forgiveness from our most esteemed Lion Clan patron. I shall bring you one worthy of you and your guest. <laughs> most esteemed? 
Matako snickered, her voice deep with reluctant amusement, as Hatsuko whisked away the bottle and brought a new, undecorated one. Ujiaki bristled, but kept his emotions on a tight leash. Diplomats frequent these establishments to discuss strategy. Find sake is a potent lubricant for negotiation. Ah, of course, Matako responded, drumming her strong fingers on the table. I have my battlefield, you have yours. Indeed, Ujiaki stroked his wild beard smooth. He had not expected such condescension from her. But he found the words for the proper counter. And how goes your personal battle, Matoko-san? They speak of nothing else these days, the Lion Embassy. I hear your husband, Daidoji Utsugiri, has abandoned you to join the Crane Army. I hope his actions have not rallied your sympathies against us in our dispute with the Crane. Matako's face stiffened at his assault. The lantern light cast shadows in the lines of remorse around her mouth, although it was properly swallowed up by her anger. She's had, had too, too much, much sake, sake to, keep to keep control of her emotions. I am sworn to the lion, to Akoda Tatori Ue, Ujiaki-sama, and my former husband's acts are none of your concern. On the contrary... Ujiaki pressed, maintaining his momentum. Military conflicts define my relationships at court. War makes enemies of friends and family for us all. I suppose it is only natural for you to want the lion to hesitate, instead of crushing those who would insult our clan with impunity. Matoko leaped to her feet, ready to draw a weapon, but she steadied herself as the patrons nearby eyed her outburst. She reseated herself, her eyes watering from the sting of shame. That was a coward's blow, Ujiaki, she hissed, before downing another cup of sake with a grip near strong enough to shatter the tiny porcelain vessel. Ujiaki smiled at the victory. Yes, forgive me, Matoko-san. He poured her another round. We all live and die for the lion in our own way, she mumbled as though she were attempting to convince herself. We will sacrifice whatever it takes in the service of honor. Yes, you have. Your break from your husband offers proof enough of your loyal sacrifices for our clan. Ujiaki scanned the room one more time, ensuring they would not be overheard before continuing. If only others were so eager to declare their loyalty as swiftly as you... There are those among us who still treasure their connections with the crane, even in the face of ultimate betrayal. Matoko frowned. Are you talking about Lord Tatori? As she followed the path he'd left for her, Ujiaki stroked his beard once more. But then again, it can be hard for childhood friends to grow up and let go for the sake of the clan. Still avoiding Tatori's name directly, he continued. Perhaps he belongs in an Asako monastery. He's more phoenix than lion anyway. A hesitating philosopher would be perfect for a pacifist clan of librarians. Tatori-sama is our leader, Matoko insisted, too tipsy to keep up the subtleties of Ujiaki's feint. These internal disputes only make our clan weak. We must move past them. 
He should have our support in his new role as champion. Let him grow into the leader he is to become. I wish there was more time for patience, Uchiaki lamented, but a looming war requires immediate action. Loyalty. Service. Sacrifice. From all of us. Like yours. Matoko looked beyond him, to young Mikyu, who sat several tables away. Matoko's daughter laughed with a crowd of young Bushi. The young warrior had just passed her Genpuku, and the cloud of her current familial troubles had vanished in the camaraderie of her new companions. After studying the happiness on her child's face, the retired sensei shook her head and let out a labored breath. <sighs> I believe in Totori-sama, Ujiaki-san. Our honor comes from obedience. To our emperor and to our champion, we would all do well to remember it. Ujiaki hid a grimace beneath a friendly smile and bowed to her, the stalemate in their discussion itching like a bead of sweat. Silence hung around their table until Hatsuko suddenly dispelled the tenseness with a tray of fresh bottles. I am sorry that the sake is not agreeing with you. Our illustrious owner has requested I bring you some of our house koshu. We were saving it for the celebrations of the Emerald Championship Tournament, but perhaps it will be more pleasing to our loyal Lion Clan guests. She set several bottles down before leaving to serve other tables. Of, of course. course. The Emerald Championship. He chuckled to himself. How could he have not seen it before? The office of the Emerald Champion was the greatest honor the Emperor can bestow on a clan, and with it came the Hante's favor. Ujiaki grinned. Of, of course, course we, we shall, shall compete in the, the tournament, tournament, and our, and our clan, clan boasts of many, many of the strongest, strongest and most experienced warriors and magistrates. And magistrates. But, but there, there stands, stands one who needs a chance to prove himself, himself useful, useful. Someone, someone who would, who would not be missed during his constant journeys throughout the Empire. Okoto Totori's face rippled on the surface of the ablution fountain. Arasu, Hotaru, Suko, and now the Emerald Championship Tournament? He dashed his reflection away by dipping the copper ladle into the font, drawing the cold water over his hands to purify them. And Kaide, my bride. Each of them was a wave spreading across the empire, and before long they would return, like the ripples bouncing off the stone walls of the fountain. Ah, Akoto Ue, you are quite early. Akoto Kage's long white hair spilled down his shoulders over a spotless black dress kimono tied with a brown and gold hakama. The sun wrinkled. The sun winked his wrinkled yet sharp eyes, and he smiled warmly as he approached. Nervous on your wedding day? Totori nodded. His aged teacher would no doubt have the wisdom he needed. It does not feel like wedding day. I have too much on my mind. What troubles you? Totori took a deep breath before looking up into the branches of a red plum tree, the leaves waving in the breeze like bloody hands. Arasu? Kage did not seem surprised. Totori continued. He should be here, accepting Kaide into our family beside me. He always teased me about Kaide, and now the day is here before that actually means something. 
Hotaru, she... Chitori didn't have the words, and Kage seemed content to let silence fill their place. The warm wind rustled the leaves gently, like the whispering of spirits. What, what will you, you do? do? He had yet to speak to Hotaru, or even see her since that day. He could not know whether she was still in Toshirambo, or if she had already returned to the imperial capital. I wonder, will I face her in the tournament of the Emerald Champion? Or her uncle, Kakita Toshimoko, perhaps the most famous duelist in all of Rokugan? How could he possibly defeat the Grey Crane, if that was who Hotaru tapped to compete? And if by some miracle he should win, Taturi would face even larger questions. The shrine darkened as a rain cloud passed in front of the sun, and the skies churned, as if they were as tumultuous as his thoughts. I thought it was just Suko, but now it seems they are trying to banish me to the court. Every day that I do not declare open war against the crane, the deeper the chasm grows within the rising factions of the lion. The worst part of this is that the paths are all clear. There are simply too many. Kage gave a polite laugh and tapped Satori's forehead with his fan. Tutori-kun, your mind has always been a labyrinth. It's my curse. Never, Kage chuckled. Arasu would always tell you that you thought too much, but that is exactly why he is where he is and you are where you are. Tutori frowned, his shoulders growing rigid at the comment, but Kage's shrewd smile hinted at a lesson in the words. Tutori-kun, Kage continued, do you remember when you first met Hisawa Kaede? Her father brought her with him to Castle Kodo to negotiate the final details of the betrothal. You were about eight, possibly nine. I was eight. I remember because Arasu had just had his sixth birthday. Hi. Your memory is the keenest of blades. You and Arasu were spearfishing in the garden pond, much to the servant's consternation. And having a small, strange phoenix girl join your party was just the oddest sight. Poor Lady Kaide knew nothing about catching fish. Hanarasu laughed right in her face. He told her he could catch ten before she would even catch one. He was just showing his lion pride. Father taught him to be stronger, faster, and more fearsome than those of any other clan. Perhaps. But for some reason you did not learn those lessons. You did not see a rival in Kaide. You saw a young bird who would learn to soar among the heavens. Not a lion cub who could hunt and wrestle. You also saw a sad little girl who perhaps could not catch a single fish before Arasu caught his ten. Do you remember what you did? I helped her catch one. You did more than that to Turikun. You called out to Arasu, I see a huge fish over there. "'and he crashed around the back end of the pond like a bucking horse. "'His splashing scared all the fish toward Kaide, and she speared one. "'There was a big fish. I wasn't lying. Rasu even caught it.' "'He did, but you made it happen. "'More importantly, you helped Arasu and Kaide both get fish.' "'Totori recalled Kaide and Arasu as children. "'Smiling.' Arasu with his toothy arrogance over his massive trout, and Kaide with her innocent delight at her delicate stickleback. Your brother had his place. He fulfilled his role well. 
He was a powerful, assertive warrior who led the charges and spilled enough blood to be the fierce and most formidable Lion Clan champion we have yet had. However, his focus was only ever on the task at hand, his eyes on a single catch. Likewise, you have your place. You see not just one fish at a time, but the pond, the shore, and the fishermen in it. For you, the situation branches far past the single path. Beyond the current battle, to the dozens that branch after it. Your perspective transcends clan squabbles, revenge, rage, and foolish mistakes. Kage folded his arms over his chest as he always did before the final words of a lesson. There are those who can crash after the single fish and get it. And then there are the rare few like you who can see where those people must go to achieve greater things. This is why you were chosen. And this is why you would be the best emerald champion the Empire could hope for. The memory glistened for a final moment into Tori's mind before vanishing. The kind old man nodded his encouragement, as he always had in times of trouble. Totori bowed to Kage. Thank you, Sensei. Your wisdom has again guided me to the right path. Kage laughed and aged, yet hearty laughed. <laughs> Don't lie, Totori-kun. The right path has always been before you. Sometimes you just need a push to take the first steps. Now, go, and join your life with that of the young bird who has become a brilliant phoenix. And remind Kaide that she is getting the kind brother. Totori bowed a last time before making his way under the Sakaki trees, where the wedding procession would start. A nervous tremor had entered his hands, seeming to fill his stomach with stones. This wedding is so importune. So soon after Arasa's funeral, during my power struggle with Suko and the others, while on the brink of war, perhaps it should have been postponed, but it is too late. Ikoma Ujiaki, Okoto Motoko, and the rest of the Imperial Lion Clan contingent joined him. The temple bells rang out, as if to herald this moment and all the change it would bring. Isawa Kaide entered the temple courtyard, wearing a flowing white kimono with red, rimming the flowers, leaves, and birds with crimson streaks. A wedding headdress crowned with a golden phoenix hooded her dark hair, from which strings of pearls hung on either side of her face. Beside her walked her father and lord, Isawa Ujina, the elemental master of void. A young bushi trailed behind them, as if she was horribly lost, until he recognized her from the dojo of the Okoto Commander School and the telltale hilt of Ofushikai. Kaide bowed to Tutori, offering a graceful, nervous smile before turning to face the approaching shrine maidens. Tutori's sight lingered a final moment on his bride. He watched the ease with which she glided through the temple etiquette, the social obligations, the nobility of the occasion— she could easily make friends of ten guests before he could gain the opinion of one. I am lucky it's her. I don't deserve a bride such as she. He took his place at Kaide's side, and the procession marched through the gates to the outer shrine. Halting at a flaming brazier, they all bowed 
as a vermilion-clad Shiginja approached with a long flowering cherry branch in hand. He chanted to the kami, his pure voice singing the purification prayer to earn their favor as a blessing over the union. Totori glanced at Kaide. She was poised, lost in the spirit of the chanting, a gentle light entering her eyes as she sensed the presence of the kami. The warmth of the communion softened her face, and Totori could still see the traces of that little girl from long ago, now blossomed into the loveliness of her adulthood. At a prompting from the Shiginja, Totori recited the ceremonial vow. I will be your husband. I will honor you and accept you into my home. I will protect and provide for you, my wife. The shrine maidens brought forth three cups of purified sake. Totori sipped from each before offering it to Kaide. Then the priest threw the cherry branch before their feet, mumbling a prayer to ignite it as a final offering to the kami. As the flames consumed the wood, Totori reached his hand out to Kaide, which she tenderly took in her own. Their fingers clasped. Her skin was warm. The Shiginja struck up a final prayer of blessing, and a shower of cherry petals rained down from the surrounding groves. The prayer ended, and the bride and groom were one. The priest bowed to both of them, and Totori and Kaide parted to reunite with their respective clans before the reception. Totori felt his lungs unclench, and he sighed, as if he could suddenly breathe again. He made his way to his clansmen to see Akoma Ujiaki's bushy brows barely conceal scowling behind the rest of the lion representatives, all gloriously adorned in their ceremony regalia. Our clan needs unity, even if it means taking myself out of the picture. The schism can heal if I move on as Emerald Champion and hand some of the reins to those below me. Perhaps then we can steer away from war together, and they will have felt they had a hand in the decision. The lion cannot afford the price of war. Rokugan cannot afford a war now. He made his way through myriad congratulations from all around before turning back to see Kaide and her family approach him. She had taken off the outer white kimono and was now completely clothed in brown and gold. A yellow lion mon embroidered on her obi. My husband, she called. Was that a hint of happiness in her voice? Shall we continue to the palace for the celebration feast? He nodded, offering his arm. She placed her hand on it, and they led the procession from the shrine. The weight of her hand comforted him. Our marriage is a union, a peace offering for the ties between Lion and Phoenix. I am no longer a single man, a single soldier. I must look beyond myself to see the larger picture. He looked up the road of fast hopes to the imperial palace, which glistened in the morning sun. I must be ready to serve all of Rokugan.
A Difference of Lanterns Written by Annie Vandermeer Mitsoda Read by Max Williams Yasuki Taka held in a frown as the servants flocked around him like sandpipers, smoothing and tucking and tightening his outfit. One shouldn't scowl at those simply doing their duty, just as he was, but the heavy silk hoke no ho was being pulled down atop other layers of formal garb that were already more than enough. I thank you for your careful ministration, but this should be sufficient, he said smoothly, giving a polite smile and waving the servants away. These hands of mine may not be so many as all of yours, but they don't lack in deftness. He pretended to busy himself with adjustments to his garments, but took special note of the servants as they departed, noting who seemed to be in the greatest hurry to leave and who lingered over long. Doubtlessly, they were sent by different clans to keep an eye on him. The game was imagining who they worked for. The first one out the door was new at espionage. Foolish move to make your exit so blatant and was probably the emperor's, chosen for convenience rather than skill. After all, who wouldn't expect the imperial gaze upon them in Otusan Uchi itself? Those who bowed and left in a cluster were more difficult to place, wiser or more experienced, likely fielded by clans with a middling interest in his affairs. Unicorn, perhaps, and certainly Lion. Phoenix and Dragon would hear about it by gossip, if at all. As for Scorpion, Taka smirked. Most likely they either did not care, or they had someone hidden under his bed. The last servant's allegiance was the easiest to guess, all formality, so intent on folding every bit of discarded clothing that the parchment seemed almost an afterthought. Crane, of course, having both the obsession with form and the keen desire to keep close watch on their former vassals. Even hundreds of years of peace could not repair the damage done by the first true interclan war, the war that had led the Emperor to forbid direct warfare between the great clans. Never had there been poorer neighbors than the Crab and Crane, unless, of course, one counted the Crab and the Shadowlands. Taka frowned, showing the emotions he'd tucked away earlier and glanced at the writing desk set out in the corner of the room. It awaited the outcome of his meeting with the Heavenly Sovereign, Hantai Thirty-Eighth, and all of Taka's hard work and persistent pleas. Too many letters of grim apology had been written at that desk, telling his people that he had not had a chance to meet with the Emperor yet, that they needed to hold on as best they could, that no aid was coming. His son attempted to hide the casualties of the battles with the monsters of the Shadowlands from him, but decades of masquerading as a simple peddler had given Yasuki Taka an enviable information network of his own. In the dim lamplight of the room, the numbers of the dead loomed like columns of smoke rising from pyres. Dim indeed, Taka suddenly said to himself in irritation, smoothing down his fine outer garment and the Yasuki family mon, a golden carp surrounding a flower of deep azure stitched carefully across the chest. He shot a withering glance at the guttering lanterns around the room. You'd think it were some kind of festival in here, what with all these lanterns, but not a one does more than waver and look pretty. 
Why so many foolish faint gleams when one strong light is all one requires? It took another few tugs on the hoke no ho before Taka calmed himself somewhat. His last truly happy memory had been haggling with the merchant for the silk to make that very garment. And it was lovely, indeed, but everything about it felt stifling and irritating. Still, the older man reasoned to himself, no better candidate to appeal to the emperor for aid than the Yasuki family Damio. The mental image arose of the Crab Clan champion's heir, Hideyakamo, kicking in the door of the throne room, but decked in war-scarred armor and bellowing for jade. Taka snickered despite himself. Somewhere outside, a great brass bell tolled the midday hour, and Taka sighed. Blessed Daikoku, hear me, and let me do my clan honor today. Let my words be heard, and my plea be successful, he whispered, and gave a wry smile. The sooner I do this, the sooner I'm out of this gaudy garb, away from these useless lamps, and back on the road. The courtyards of the Forbidden City seemed oddly empty as Yasuki Taka approached the palace, figures half-discerned conversing in gardens, vaguely screened by vegetation. Weeks had passed since the Grandoy's funeral memorializing the Emerald Champion, Doji Satsume, and the many visiting dignitaries had paid their respects and returned home already. Yet, the final converging of the Imperial Court before summer was upon them, and the grounds should have been swarming with courtiers and their attendants. Those few gazes surrounding him seemed to alight on him like insects in a swamp, and Taka soothed his nerves by recalling the time he'd talked his way out of a bandit ambush— one simple peddler against seven cutthroats. His gift had been to draw a commonality between himself as a man just struggling to make a living and the bandit's own plight. The knaves had been so moved that not only was he sent on his way without a scratch, but with several sails besides. Although seemingly far removed from twisting mountain roads and the affairs of the common people, all the obfuscations of the imperial capital could not change the fact that the issue in both cases had been the same. Survival. The Crab Clan fought for not only their lives, but the future of Rokugan itself. He needed to make the Emperor realize what was truly at stake, and finally, this audience could grant him the chance. Trusted servants greeted Taka with deep bows as he entered the palace proper the imperial chrysanthemum picked out on the breast of their livery in jade-colored thread. Honored representative of the Crab Clan, Yasuki-sama, announced the foremost among the servants, a bright stripe of rank along the wide sleeves of his kasode. You are to be received in his imperial majesty's music room, if you would follow me. Obligingly, Taka nodded and trailed after the lead servant, who padded along the smooth floors with a precise and practiced formality if a bit quickly. A tension rose in the air, like the sensation of a knot tied too quickly, and the Yasuki Damio finally spoke up. Apologies, but I am not as young as I once was, and your speed seems a trifle... Suddenly, they stopped. The servant slid open the shoji screen door and bowed in one elegant motion. The music room of his heavenly sovereign, honored Damio, he intoned. I shall leave you in privacy. Another bow, again just a touch too fast, and the servant was gone. Through the doorway was a room lined with elegant instruments. Biwa made of rare wood and gold-touched strings, stretching bronze trees lined with tiny bells, 
even a rare shamisen. Strangely, none of the lanterns within the room were lit, but Taka could make out an indistinct figure leaning over a long zither, stroking their fingers over the strings. The Yasuki Damio bowed deeply at the threshold. My most sincere thanks, Heavenly Sovereign, for agreeing to speak with me, he intoned, but further speech was cut off by a deep, resonant laugh, melodious as one of the bells on the bronze tree and just as warm. Taka nearly jerked upright in surprise, but kept still and smothered the shock on his face. The pleasure is mine, although I fear I cannot claim that title. But his imperial majesty, Hantai the Thirty-Eighth, has given the duty of this audience to me. The tone was smooth as the curve of a peony's petal, or the arc of a katana's blade. You may rise, Yasuki Dono. Taka straightened, looking into the icy blue eyes of Kakiti Yoshi, daimyo of one of the greatest families of the Crane Clan, whose smile never rode north of his nose. Imperial Chancellor, Taka said, infusing his voice with a casual kindness as warm as Yoshi's smile and just as sincere. I would be pleased to speak with you about this most pressing matter. Of course, Yoshi replied, his voice almost a purr. I apologize for his majesty's absence, but he had other sudden business to attend to, and I did not want you to put on your very finest for nothing. He unfolded his fan, which, Taka noticed suddenly, was not his usual accessory of silk and sandalwood, but a tessin made of pure silver, and its angled edges glittered as the crane courtier gestured at Taka's formal outfit. It is very striking indeed, such fine silk. Taka inclined his head in thanks. I am grateful for such praise. Unfortunately, it was not as elegant as the instruments in this room. Why, I could hardly see you behind that zither. Do you play or just admire? I am afraid I lack the leisure time to do more than appreciate instruments. Yoshi sighed dramatically. But perhaps you do? Not the zither, but possibly the mouth-harp. It has such an amusing sound. I find the best use of my mouth is to bargain with it. Taka's laugh was smooth and hollow as a blown egg. May we begin? The Imperial Chancellor assented, and the men seated themselves, skirmishing with gestures as they did so. Yoshi fluttered his tessin absently while he gestured delicately with the other hand. Now. What can the powers of the Imperial Court do for you? Of course you know of the Crab Clan's requests, honored Chancellor, Taka began. It is common knowledge within the Court that the situation along the Caillou Wall is dire. The attacks from the Shadowlands grow in size, frequency, and ferocity by the day. But of course, Yoshi murmured, his deep voice serious. And the Court weeps at your troubles. But surely you know of the difficulties inherent in fielding troops to support the crab? The fan snapped shut, and Yoshi tapped the air. First, traveling by sea is not an option. If the cost of sending so many ships were not already a burden on the Imperial Treasury, surely the vessels would be a tempting target for the vile pirates that name themselves the Mantis Clan. Their leader, Yoritomo, may his name be cursed as a vicious streak as deep as the scar on his ugly face. Were but a single mantis craft to see those ships, they would be as good as doomed. Taka employed a knowing nod. 
Of course, the depredations of the mantis are well known. Perhaps such a force could travel on land instead? The way would be long, but the need of the crab is quite great. Again came that smile, accompanied by frozen blue eyes. Ah, but what peoples would not be upset at the sight of an army marching through their lands? Peasants are so easily frightened. How could I put my people through the anxiety of seeing an army marching south along Crane Roads into Crab Territory? Our clans have not warred for hundreds of years, Honored Chancellor, Taka pointed out gently. And Crane Roads are not the only path to the south. There exists routes through Lionlands as well. Yoshi tilted his head sympathetically, his fan tapping his chin. Forgive my memory, Yasuki Dono, but has the Lion Clan not already offered the crab their help and been refused? Taka eased out a tense breath. That is so, Chancellor, but the terms the Lion gave were impossible for the crab. They required full control over where their troops would be placed, all respect to the Lion Generals, but combat along the Caillou Wall and against the horrors of the Shadowlands is something with which they have no experience. The Tensin waved as if brushing away the protests. And you imply they could not be bothered to learn? Alas, such pickiness makes me wonder if the Crab's need truly is as great as they say. The already dark room seemed to grow incrementally darker, and Taka spread his hands genially as if to ward against it. Let us speak of jade and weapons, then, and free ourselves of the idea of hands to wield them. Such a shipment could easily be taken from Otosan Uchi to Kayudan Hida, far more quickly and with less chance of attracting the mantis. Yoshi gave a pained sigh. Alas, but the coasts are largely the province of the crane, and would be the soonest hit if such a plan failed, and such weapons fell into Yoritomo's hands. The crab may be short their equipment, but my own people would find themselves beset by a scourge made even stronger. The Chancellor's tone tightened. I must protect them from the Mantis pirates, or anyone else who might come to own such weapons, for that matter. Taka's smile grew warmer, as if seeking to melt the opposition. There is the possibility of the overland route. Do you not recall my opposition to the march of an army? They could walk more casually, if you like. The moment fell, and Yoshi's smile flattened humorously. Is there anything else, Yasuki Dono? Taka clasped his hands and glanced down, as if holding a run of cards. If weapons are too dangerous, then let us discuss jade. The crab's supplies are running perilously low, and without it our troops are vulnerable to the hideous taint of the Shadowlands. It is enough of a burden fighting it outside the Caillou Wall. We would not see it inflict its agony and madness within as well. Indeed not, exclaimed Yoshi, fluttering his tessin to highlight his shock. But you must understand that as Chancellor I must follow the laws as they have been set. The jade that has been mined by each clan is meant for them, first and foremost. Surely the need of the crab is pressing indeed. Yoshi's sonorous voice was a practiced display of sympathy. But does the crab truly know of the needs of the other clans, needs which I must hear and address? With each tale my heart cracks, but I must be as stone and remain resolute, firm, and unbreakable. Taka's laugh was touched with bitterness. The Caillou Wall is made from stone, Chancellor, 
I wish it were as unbreakable as your will, but it seems we are not so lucky. Yoshi smirked slightly, resting his fan against his cheek. I am of the unpopular opinion that there is no such thing as luck. Merely the actions of humanity, or the favor of the gods, the intent of one or the other. All else is coincidence, as in nature. He closed his eyes dramatically. A lone cherry falls, golden koi swim in circles, an ox voids its bowels. Taka finished, and had his chuckle as Yoshi's eyes popped open. Forgive me, Chancellor. As I said, negotiation is my gift, not music or poetry. And though one cannot buy anything while the store is closed, I owed it to my clan to try all the same. He stood and bowed low. With your leave, Kikita Dono, I shall depart. How rustic. Yoshi chuckled airlessly and waved his tessin at the door. It was a pleasure, Yasuki Dono. You may go. The weather had turned by the time Yasuki Taka left the palace, forcing him into an agonizingly slow walk to his apartments as diligent servants held a long bamboo umbrella over his head. The sheeting rain made the long trek all the longer, although no eyes seemed to be watching him this time. They were screened by dripping boughs of maple and rhododendron. In all of Taka's negotiations against Damio, Bandits, nobles, and peasants alike, there had been a core conceit, an uncomplicated certainty at its center. Like a ship at sea, or a child in a gloomy house, he sought it. The light of, I want to make a deal. Whether a bright brazier or a guttering candle flame, that light made any negotiation possible. If the emperor had simply cancelled their meeting, Taka would have waited for another chance to find that light in Otusan Ushi. Instead, Chancellor Kakita Yoshi had made the imperial court not just a darkness, but a void. The flame hadn't gone out here. It was never going to catch. The valiant efforts of the servants prevented dampness from settling into Taka's clothes, but sadly could do nothing for his socks. His tabby were soaked by the time he made it back to his apartments. Exhausted, and at least a little bit past caring about the specifics of formality at this point, Taka gladly peeled them off his feet as he stepped out of his getta at the entrance and into more comfortable slippers. A servant collected them from him with a bow and vanished as expertly as she had earlier that day. Taka frowned after her for a moment, but sighed and continued to his apartments, sliding the door shut after him. He was more than halfway into the room before it hit him, bringing the Yasuki Damio to a startled stop. In a corner, a small lantern burned brightly, and beside it, a bowl of incense sent twin tendrils of smoke spiraling into the air. Taka took a deep breath and found himself wreathed in the scents of his homeland, cedar and camellia, spicy and warm. Such relaxation was short-lived, however. Upon opening his eyes, Taka also noticed a hooded figure sitting across the room, and he started despite himself. Uh, f forgive me, he stuttered, then cleared his throat and returned to a semblance of calm. I was not expecting any visitors, and my servants did not announce you properly. If this incense is your doing, I thank you kindly for it, and I would know you properly. 
The stranger chuckled warmly and stood, revealing himself to be a tall man with an athletic build. Formality is about as familiar to you as those clothes, he observed, although to your credit you wear both well. He pushed back his hood, revealing long black hair, bright green eyes, and a long scar across his face. Yoritomo, I presume, Taka said after a moment, and the stranger smiled and nodded. A unique pleasure, the leader of the Mantis clan grinned. Unfappable, I admire that. I've been looking forward to meeting you for some time. I have a business proposition that you might find enticing. Taka nodded and was about to inquire further when a large sackcloth was snapped over his head and the world was nearly swallowed in darkness. Only the dim light of the lantern was visible through the cloth, proceeding as he carried away. Family Duty by Robert Denton III Read by Jeannie Kelvar The humming ball of arrows screeched as it broke the forest canopy. The buck erupted from a nearby bush with a cry, springing into a panicked gallop. The wood swallowed it up. Shinjo Yasumura watched it bound away, then patted his horse and clicked his tongue. I should have taken a shot, he muttered. His horse grunted affirmatively. Shinjo Shono appeared within moments, unstrung bow in hand. Which way? he asked, soft eyes searching. Yasumura gestured with his bow. It's tired. It won't be long now. Shono nodded and fished the bowstring from his saddlebag. He tied it to one end of his yumi, then thrust the bow into the metal hook at the bottom of his saddle. Creases formed on his smooth forehead as he bent the bow and guided his string. Yasumura stroked the short beard, carpeting his square jaw. It was lying flat in the brush, he continued, likely hoping we'd canter by. It's smart. Will you finish the poor thing? Came Shinjo Haruko's voice from the edge of the clearing. She slid on her padded archery glove as her white pony brought her into the clearing. If it is too stressed, the meat will be no good. Shono finished stringing his bow. His boyish eyes sparked. You can have the meat, Haruko-chan. I am after a new trophy for the Red Hall. And some day you may win one, Yasumura teased. His horse bolted trailing Yasumura's laughter in its wake. Shono's protest rattled the clearing as he galloped after. Haruko sighed, turning in her plated saddle towards the woman behind her. <sighs> I should just give up on my fresh-seared venison and embrace my venison hot-pot future. From her horse, Shinjo Altern Sarnai warmly smiled. The summer breeze played with her tight midnight braid and lavender sleeves, the sun a splash of gold in her gray eyes. 
Haruko tilted her head sideways, her walnut ponytail swinging. You're staring again. What is it? She looked down at herself, searching for anything askew among her purple kimono and the black padded muniate shielding her chest. It is nothing. Alton Sinai looked up beneath the shade of the trees. Her smile touched her eyes, cracking faint wrinkles. I am only admiring the peonies. Haruko followed her gaze to florid blooms suspended among the swaying jade verdure of the summer canopy. Already they are dropping petals, the older woman continued. They bloom so briefly, lasting only a few days, just a breeze or splash of rain, and they surrender, popping like a burst bubble. Is it truly such a burden to hold their blooms for just a moment longer? Haruko's sharp eyes softened. Mother? Alton Sanai chuckled, shaking her head. It is fine, Haruko-chan. I get this way when I see my children all together. We should do so more often. A nostalgic gleam twinkled in her gray eyes. It was not that long ago that you were my little foal. Here we go. Haruko procured her bow and began to string it. You used to cling to my leg. I carried you everywhere I went. Even in the five-wind course, there you were. Haruko's horse snorted. I know you, eh? Haruko replied. But it's best to just let her talk. Of course, Alton Sinai continued. Had I known you were paying attention during those meetings, you would be the one handling them now. A crash came from the woods. The two women paused at an indecipherable curse, followed by what was clearly Yasumura's laughter. I understand congratulations are in order, Alton Sinai said. It is a great honor to be considered for the Imperial Guard. Bow strung, Haruko absently picked through her quiver. Perhaps so, but I imagine that is as far as it will get. With all your recommendations? I'm not so sure. Haruko fixed her gaze, rejecting arrow after arrow. An entire book of recommendations would not be enough to forestall an imperial censure, much less impress whoever becomes the Emerald Champion. Alton Sarnai's horse moved to Haruko's side without so much as a whispered request. She patted her daughter's hand. It is folly to predict what those in power will do. I have learned that more than a few times. As for imperial censure, she shrugged, I do not think the Mia would support it. Uh, perhaps, came Haruko's reply. Alton Sarnai looked up once more. Petals were falling. Her thin fingers curled around her midnight braid, and she tugged it. I could have made certain, she whispered. Haruko blanched. Her ponytail swept an arc as she spun. No, mother! And I agreed to the treaty. You would have your appointment. Yasumura would have his estate. And Shona would have his... Her mother trailed off, leaving the rest unsaid. A breeze raked petals from the arched canopy. For a long time, neither spoke. "'Why don't you appoint Yasumura as your heir?' Haruko asked. "'He is the eldest, after all.' "'It would not make him happy,' Altunsan and I replied. "'Is that required?' Haruko met her mother's stone eyes. "'Some say not wanting the position is a boon.' "'Is that so?' Altunsan and I smiled. "'We tried to teach you tea ceremony while you were a child, "'and you fought your sensei with every step.' You had no patience for it, predictably, of course. 
Even the Ayuchi at your birth declared you would be most at home in a storm. She gestured to Haruko's Yumi. But the very first day they put a bow in your hands, you outperformed all your peers and proved yourself my daughter. The difference is simple. You hated one and loved the other. So you see, happiness makes difficult tasks easy. Thus, we should pursue what we want. In that case, Haruka replied, you were absolutely right to reject the treaty. Elton Sarnai paused. You would have been miserable, wasting away, tied to the stall of some unworthy Ikoma warden, like a trophy to be showed off. Whatever we would have gained from the treaty, it would not have replaced what we would have lost. Haruko finally selected an arrow from her quiver and knocked it, looking into the woods. It is easier to worry over a foal when it is in your stable. I will forge my own destiny, and I do not need some treaty to do it. Whatever stands in our way, the five winds must never be tamed. Altern Sarnai's eyes shone. You will have a great future then, Haruka-chan. A shout broke the air. The deer leapt into the clearing, its pointed antlers raking the canopy. Haruko smoothly pointed the arrow, drew, twisted her wrist, exhaled, and released. The deer collapsed and lay still. Ha! Yasumura's hawkish face appeared only moments behind. What a shot! Shono appeared next, frowning. Haruko's arrow protruded from the creature's eye like a planted flag. He sighed and lowered his weapon. Cheh, he grunted. Yasumura laughed, his hooked nose pointing at the sky. She outdid you again, Shonokun. But you should be used to it by now, nay? He elbowed his brother in the side. Well done, sister. Shono forced a reluctant smile. I doubt I shall ever be as skilled at the bow as you. Haruko calmly unstrung her bow. It is silly to speak what everyone knows, Shonokun, but it is still good to hear you say it. Shono sighed and bowed. This victory is yours then, Haruko-chan. Well earned. He straightened. I suppose the beast belongs to you, then. Well, Yasumura said, dismounting. To be quite even about it, we all contributed to this victory. Mother is the one who spotted the buck and drove it from the herd. Shono tired it out, and Haruko ended the chase. And I, he added, straightening his back, composed a poem about it. Haruko smirked. The most important role of all. His eyes twinkled. You might even get a mention, sister. If I remember. Then I suppose we all four share this victory, Shono mused. Yasumura kneeled beside the creature, seizing it by the antler. Indeed, Shono-kun. Therefore, to commemorate our shared victory, I propose we commission four daggers and let the handles be made from this antler. A splendid idea, Haruko agreed. Four points, four daggers. Alton Sarnai smiled at her children and nodded. I will commission them upon our return. The siblings shared a triumphant look. And we should commission a fifth from the other antler, Alton Sarnai added, so that there will be one for Shahaisan. The last, the last of the peony blossoms fell to the shadowed ground. The keening buzz of the cicadas fell suddenly quiet. What did she do to catch this deer? Shono asked. 
She is here in spirit, Altonsar and I replied. The gesture would mean much to her and to Ayuchi Daiyusama, a reminder that she is welcome among us. She may as well be your sister, Shono. Yasamura nodded, but Haruko looked away. If that is your wish, mother, Shono uttered, dismounting to tie up their catch. Altonsar and I watched his back in silence. He said nothing else for the rest of the trip. Alton Sarnai found Shono in the family stables. He was brushing his horse's mane and whispering into its ear. A knee-high gate enclosed the stall, and a painted shoji screen separated the horse from the night-cloaked courtyard. Alton Sarnai waited in the aisle until Shono finally saw her, bowing his head in greeting. Subasa is looking quite healthy, she said. She stroked the beast's neck and offered it a flat palmful of spindly maroon carrots. He's restless, Shona replied. I think he resents the fact that I brought Umiboshi this afternoon instead of him. She scratched the horse's snout as it chewed the thin roots. It is for his own good that he has not ridden every day. He has always been a hard keeper. If you always take him out, he will get too thin again. She paused, then looked pointedly at Shono. But then, those beneath your care do not always understand when you act in their best interests, do they? Subasa understands, Shono said. He just disagrees. Altun Sarnai watched Shono's youthful face. When did this happen? His brow pinched. When did you feel that you could no longer tell me everything? You've been avoiding me, even today. We used to have no secret, Shono. When did that change? The horses shifted in their stalls. Shono's fists clenched. He burst. Is it true that you turned down the Lion Treaty simply to preserve your own happiness? That you put yourself before the welfare of the clan? She stared at her son with wide eyes. Who dared to say? No one, mother. No one but I. Shono glared with a red face. You know better than most what the treaty would have done for the clan. If the lion had accepted us, the other clans would have no excuse but to do otherwise. All it would have required was for you to endure for the sake of your kin. He turned away. All my life you told me that a good champion must put his best interests after that of the clan. How am I to tell my future children the same? Knowing that their grandmother, given the chance, would not. Is that what you truly think? she whispered. He did not reply. She stepped forward, placing her hand on his shoulder. Shono, you are my sun and sky, and your heart is like an untamed river. But you have grown bold, and you are still young. You see only what is directly in front of you. Just as a horse that challenges its rider will surely doom them both, so too will you, should you not trust the path I have chosen. He looked back. Can you at least say that, whatever the reasons, your own desires were not among them? Her jaw clenched. We are all fighting invisible battles, Shono. It is not for one to judge those of another. So you say, he replied. 
Alton Sarnai opened her mouth to speak, but then paused. Subasa lazily craned his neck toward the courtyard. Muted shouts erupted from beyond the soji screen. She stepped away from her son and cast the screen aside. A young woman knelt in the courtyard grass, surrounded by guards and retainers of Far Traveler Castle. The Utaku family Mon, a solid lavender circle, beamed from her traveling garments. With both hands planted, she struggled for breath. Alton Sarnai stepped out of the stables as one her retainers bowed and the guards lowered their heads. "'What is the meaning of this?' she demanded. "'Honored lady,' spoke one of the retainers, "'this is Otaku Yumino-sama. "'She has come with an urgent message but will not relinquish it.' He cast them battle-made in a resentful glare. "'She claims it is only for your ears.' The woman panted, "'Forgive me, my lady!' Alton Sarnai looked down at the struggling woman. "'Utaku Yumino-san?' She paused. "'The one stationed at... Isumurimura, yes? "'Your mother was the hero of the Kobaku earthquake?' Umino's eyes widened. Her cheeks flushed. "'Yes, my lady,' she croaked. "'As you say!' Alton Sarnai frowned at the woman's hoarse voice. Only now did she notice the tan sheen of road dust on the woman's windswept kimono and curtain of frayed hair. "'Bring this woman some water,' she commanded. "'She has been riding for some time.' Four hours,' Yumono said. Wetness gathered at the rims of her reddening eyes. "'I nearly broke Porkiso, but he understood.' "'What has happened?' Alton Sarnai demanded. "'The lion seized the village, shinjo "'The retainers exchanged looks. "'One of the guards spat. "'Alton Sarnai nodded. "'How many?' Uh, "'A small force, my lady, mostly Ashikaru. "'They barched beneath the banner of the Matsu family. "'Casualties?' "'Only one. "'Lady Hisako challenged their commander.' With her death, she secured our right to evacuate. The others led the villagers towards City of the Rich Frog. I was entrusted to deliver this news. I... She closed her eyes. I should have stayed and fought. I have failed to Sakosama. Alton Sarnai shook her head. What point would there be in throwing your life away? No, Yumino-san, you did the right thing. The Ataku reached into her robes and drew out a small scroll, which she offered with both hands. It was sealed with the image of a lion's paw clutching a sword handle. The Matsu Mon. As Alton Sinai read, Shono came up behind her. His eyes narrowed. Writ of official intention? He quoted, his voice rising in a questioning tone. Behold, lion courtesy. Alton Sinai looked to her retainers. They claim that because Hisumorimura was among the named villages to be traded in the treaty, they are entitled to it as compensation for what they attest was a broken promise. Outrageous! remarked one retainer. As she continued, her gray eyes widened. She began to close the scroll, but Shono reached out before she could, clasping the edge of the paper. Is this true? The commander who led this attack, it was Matsu Mitsuko? The battle maiden nodded. Murmurs filtered through the crowd. That Mitsuko and Shono's betrothal was a term of the failed treaty 
was no secret to anyone here. Shono looked away toward a pale and distant moon. It was waning and nearly gone, only a glowing sliver remaining to suggest it was ever there. Mitsuko, he whispered. A man with the Idemon stepped forward. My lady, it seems the Matsu have seen fit to equip us with adequate cause to request imperial intervention. This is an illegal seizure of land. At your word, I can deploy a message to the Forbidden City. With the blessing of the Arkami, it should arrive quickly. Her retainers waited. At last, Altonsane spoke. I will not wait on the Imperials. The lion must learn they cannot simply take what they want. She looked to the Ide. Bring me no less than twenty-five warriors who are ready to ride, and prepare Yuki. The Ide's eyebrows rose at the name of the ancestral armor of the unicorn. Altonsar and I nodded. I will handle this personally. Wait! Shono spoke. This is a test. Such an attack is beneath your notice, mother. Send me instead. Once more, the retainers exchanged murmurs. Alton Sarnai regarded her son. Shono, she began. He stepped forward, meeting her eyes with a determined face. They sent Mitsuko. Because they believed it would divide us. They think they can leverage my personal feelings against the clan. Let me show them that such tactics do not work. He looked to the others. Let me prove to all that your future champion cannot be so easily manipulated. They all turned to Shinjo Altonsarnai. Shono lowered his head. Very well, she finally said. Yumino leapt to her feet. Shono-sama, I beg you, allow me to accompany you. I know the village layout and the forces holding it. I can be of great use to you. So be it, Shono said. But I will not risk the health of an Itaku steed, and yours must recover from the ride. You will make do with one of mine. He looked to a stable hand. Show her Subasa and let them be acquainted. Yumino bowed deeply. I will not fail you, Shono-sama. The guards dispersed. The retainers filtered out of the courtyard. Shono made for the keep, sending servants ahead to fetch his sword. But Alton Sarnai pulled him aside. You realize you will have to face her on the battlefield, she said. I would have spared you that, Shono. Are you prepared to draw steel against her? You mean, am I prepared to set my personal feelings aside and do what is best for the clan? Shono met her gaze. Of course I am, mother. Is that not what a champion must do? As Shono walked away, Altron Sinai turned cold in his shadow. The peach trees lining the courtyard had dropped all their blossoms and stood bare in the dusty night.
Beneath, Below, Beyond. Written by Annie Vandermeer Mitsoda. Read by Max Williams. Yourself, Yasuki Dono. I fear this may be a little bright. Yasuki Taka appreciated the warning, but the light that stung his eyes after the sackcloth hood had been removed pained him all the same. He did his best to look composed and unworried, even as he blinked and rubbed his sore wrists where his restraints had been. The blur next to him Ah, a man, yes. Long black hair and a scar marked him as Yoritomo. Notorious pirate to some, dashing leader to others, and the champion of the Mantis clan to all. Yoritomo nodded, the apology apparent in his visage, even through Taka's blurred vision. Welcome to my second home, respected Damio, and I do apologize for bringing you here in this particular manner. He continued, his voice rough from shouting orders on stormy seas. Even silken ropes can chafe but I imagined that if we had the ill fortune to be caught, it would be a great deal easier if the representative of the Crab Clan appeared to have been carried off by vile kidnappers rather than escorted by their rival's greatest scourge. I can appreciate that, said Taka, nodding. Even the wisest plan involves some risk and sacrifice. I'm no blushing young courtesan who despairs at a blemish, after all. Nobody checks my wrists, save those who imagine I'm concealing something in my sleeves. Which I imagine you do, on occasion. Taka cracked a smile. You do seem to know me well, so-called son of storms. Although I wish I knew your secret tunnels underneath Otusan Uchi even a fraction as well. Passages underneath the Imperial City that even the Scorpion Clan are unaware of? The older man leaned back on the bench on which he sat, and gave a look that was half-indulgent smile half-sly smirk. I'm certain, however, that if you'd hustled me out of there simply with my hands bound, that would have worked just as well. I wonder if putting that hood over my head and bagging me up in that sack were more meant to advance the kidnapping fiction, or to protect your own secrets. There was a tight pause in the air, and Taka's gut clenched reflexively, waiting for a negative outcome. But suddenly Yoritomo laughed aloud, white teeth flashing, and the Isuki family daimyo quietly relaxed. I had a feeling I would like you, the Mantis champion chuckled, his dark eyes intense. But one can only trust the words of spies so far, especially when it comes to one's own preferences. I am gratified to learn they were correct. Yoritomo rose from his seat and walked across the room and Taka blinked the last of the blur from his eyes, surveying the room around him. It was elegantly paneled with cedar. The pleasant scent reminded Taka of the tall forests around his home and Yasuki Yashiki, and adequately lit by flickering lights fixed to the walls in brass and glass sconces. Wooden shutters, not sliding paper screens, covered the windows, their slats pressed shut and secured with metal latches. The furniture was not only raised above the ground in gaijin fashion, but secured in place with brass rivets. Taka's lips twitched, hiding a smile. A random visitor might conclude from the numerous latches, locks, and rivets that the Mantis champion was paranoid about theft, 
but anyone who savvy in trade as Taka knew the accumulated costs of such rare materials would make any sensible person wary of the same. Snapping his attention back to his present company, Taka watched patiently as Yoritomo opened a drawer on a large chest and withdrew a package, sliding the drawer shut with the barest squeak of smoothly sanded wood before locking it once more. Smiling, he handed the package to Taka, who took it and tried not to betray a small surprise that it seemed to be a simple bundle of clothing. This is an awkward thing to ask, Yasuki Dono, but I ask that you change your clothes before we proceed. I would like to show you something outside of my quarters, and your current outfit is quite... distinctive. Yoritomo gave a casual nod. It could very well attract the wrong type of attention. Taka glanced down at his finery, silken court garb with the mon of the Yasuki family picked out in careful embroidery on the chest, rumpled and a little soiled from the journey, but still obviously valuable, and chuckled as he stood. You could say that, yes. He opened the bundle and was pleased to see it contained a loose set of kosode and hakama in a well-made but plain fabric. I know they hardly suit someone of your rank, but subterfuge. Yoritomo gave a small, knowing smile. That, I believe, is something you are as familiar with as your own house. Another bow, and the tall man exited the room barely opening the door wide enough for him to pass before sliding it shut with hardly a sound. Yusuke Taka unfolded the clothing, taking a moment to run his hands over the material, simple but more comfortable by far than the burlap he'd been bagged in like a sack of rice. He laid out the clothes and took a moment to examine his own finery. As little as he liked wearing it, it did seem practical to keep an eye on maintaining its quality. It was a simple marvel that his clothes had survived the nonsense of being carried through countless tunnels, up and down stairs and rough slopes, all without staining or tearing the fine silk or snagging the embroidery. Although it was possibly less of a marvel than one in a series of strange events, compounded by the fact that somewhere in the stretch of time between Taka's abduction and his arrival here was a bit of fogginess, an almost imperceptible break as if he dozed off. He couldn't have been taken too far from Otusan Uchi. A prolonged absence from the Forbidden City would be taken with some alarm, but where he could be was a bit of a puzzle. While the interior of Yoritomo's dwelling was certainly distinct, it was difficult to say if the same uniqueness would be reflected on the outside. Not that I didn't appreciate the offer of a business proposition from the head of the Mantis clan, Taka sighed, moving to shed his formal clothes. But if I had known it was going to involve being abducted from my apartments and taken God's nowhere, I might have asked for a moment more to think about it. Ah, well, a predictable life is a dead one, Taka quoted to himself and chuckled. If that's true, I may be the most alive man in all of Rokugan. Mirth turned to annoyance as he tugged at the knots of his formal wear. Just as he suspected, the servants had tied his hoke no ho too tightly and with a diligent struggle he managed to extricate himself from the elaborate tunic and remove the rest of his garments, dropping them almost spitefully into a pile on the nearby bench. The peasant garb felt like rounding a mountain pass to see one's own home again after a long trip, albeit earlier than expected. The inclusion of a money purse, empty though it was, 
with the outfit made Taka absolutely sure that Yoritomo knew of his secret exploits as a peddler. Taka chuckled to himself as he tied on the belt. Yoritomo is a true mantises man. Any opening to show me up and he's already struck. I wonder if I've ever sold the man anything before, not knowing who he was, but him knowing me full well. The Suki Damio suddenly hesitated mid-knot, his chuckle a trifle more sour. If so, I do hope I gave him a good deal. Taka smoothed out the small creases in the cassode, smirking to himself at the sight of being back in familiar clothes again. But after a breath, his hands stilled, and the smirk faded. The last time he'd been in such garb was before his trip to Otusan Uchi, before the urgent mission from his clan champion, before all the letters from his son describing the piled dead of crab warriors and enemies and the smoke from their pyres. Taka regarded himself in the burnished silver plate fastened to the wall and took in the specifics of the outfit he wore, blue-gray and brown, the crab clan colors. The clothes were a subtle gesture and as intentional as every single word Yoritomo chose, diligently disguising his regional accent. Despite all the stories painting the mantis as brutes, there were obviously many layers to the man, and his willingness to endanger himself by kidnapping Taka directly hinted at a deep importance to whatever this offer might be. And though it seemed impossible that the mantis were in such a dire position as the crab, the risks they'd taken just to get him here spoke of something severe. The older man caught himself rubbing his hands together in anticipation and stilled them quickly, making his face serene and businesslike. Daikoku no Kami, fortune of wealth and commerce, Taka whispered. You certainly seem to be listening, since you've displayed such humor in the events of the day so far. You helped me talk my way out of a bandit ambush once, now it's pirates. You and I both know I'm in my element here, but... He grinned to himself. A little luck never hurt. Taka turned to face the door and saw it held shut by another brass latch. A bit of suspicion imported from a gaijin or two. He mused aloud and then grunted with surprise as the door turned out to be surprisingly heavy. Or is it suspicion grown from home? With a bit of uncharacteristic bluster, Taka huffed and pulled the door open wide and found himself speechless as he took in the scene beyond. No city street or mountain holdfast lay before him, nor forest stronghold either. The deck of a ship, impressive in length and breadth, constructed from the same mountain cedars in the room behind him, stretched out, eerily still atop calm blue waters, a mass of waving marshy reeds beyond. Twin black sails, battened with long horizontal beams of bamboo and emblazoned with the teal-green mon of the Mantis clan, fluttered idly in the constant breeze. Sailors worked at an unhurried pace, barely glancing at the newcomer in their midst. A sudden sharp whistle nearly made him jump out of his skin. He wheeled around and looked up to see Yoritomo above him, leaning against a railing on the cabin's roof and grinning. Welcome, my friend, to the Bitter Wind, flagship of the First Storm. The Mantis leader smiled with an almost parental pride as he gestured to one of the steep companionways leading up to the deck upon which he stood. You and I have much to discuss. Yasuki Taka steeled himself with a deep breath and grasped hold of the railing leading up to the topmost deck of the Bitter Wind. Brass again, another nod to both Yoritomo's gaijin influences and his wealth 
and ascended the steps to where the Mantis champion awaited him. Yoritomo gave a small bow as Taka arrived, a subtle show of respect that, with Taka in his merchant's garb, would have been questionable for any outsider watching too long. The only other person on the upper deck, an older woman in teal-green linen robes, glanced at the pair, but did not cease gently waving her hands, as if making shapes within mist. A unique vessel, Taka said at last, rubbing his chin in reflexive consternation. I cannot say I've seen any like it before. That is because none other exists like it, said Yoritomo with pride. Bitter wind is of my own design, combining the innovation of ships from any and all outsiders with our own Rokugani style. It is the way of the mantis, to observe, to adapt, to improve. The pride of my clan sits here in the planks below our feet. The unusually stable planks, I've noticed, Taka added, crossing his arms as if slightly uneasy. Part of me wonders if this is all an illusion. I close my eyes and I'm half convinced I'm still on land. Yoritomo gestured to the middle-aged woman nearby, who acknowledged with a simple dip of her head. Most of that, and the finer points of your travel here, are due to Kudaka. The Mantis champion smiled with a fierce, friendly affection. She is the finest of my ten kinja, our priestesses of temples and tides. None exist in the whole of the Emerald Empire who are as talented as they. The older woman clucked her tongue and rolled her eyes a bit, a gesture that would have elicited gasps in the Imperial Court. Yoritomo here loves to hear himself talk, that's for sure. She sighed, her tone strong with the accent of the islands of silk and spice. Full of compliments as sails on a blustery day. It is not only I who handles this task, but the twins on the deck there. She jerked her head at two similarly clad slender figures at midships below, crouching on either side of the boat and waving their hands at the water like children at a fountain. Beneath their fingers, the sea was glassy and still as a mirror. And it's tradition, this, just asking the kami for their aid. We try not to do it for too long, make some ansi, but they know it's for important company, so they help out. Taka laughed a little despite himself. I thank you for stating it so plainly. Even Crab Shugenja are somewhat more opaque when they describe their gifts. Kudaka shrugged. I'll talk your ear off if you let me, but this still needs my work. She jerked her head at Yoritomo, who smiled almost like a child caught misbehaving. Go on, then. You bragged. Now about your business and let me work. Yoritomo gave a playful half-bow. Certainly. And led Taka back down the opposite companionway toward the bow of the ship, as if attempting to outpace the dismissive snort that Kudaka leveled at his retreating back. The smooth cedar of the bitter wind's deck barely creaked beneath the feet of the two men, a shock after the constant clamor of the Imperial Palace's much-vaunted nightingale floors and their chorus of whistling squeaks. Around them, sailors clad in black with sashes of teal moved with a deliberate, unhurried pace, weaving around them as rocks in a stream, their respectful nods to their captain and daimyo barely perceptible in their efficiency. Yoritomo strode with the purpose of a man totally at ease in his domain, Taka drifting along in his wake. The world has divisions, Yoritomo said suddenly, at once solemn. The elements, the spirit realms, life and death. They're useful, like rolls on a ship. I am captain, and there are those below me who obey, and those who obey them. 
hierarchies, lineages, chains of command. I know the crab can appreciate that one, that ensure that if one were to fall, all would not. But there are those who take divisions too far, who place division where there is none, who turn petty slights into deep divides. The Damio frowned, and Taka quickened his pace to hear him as the tall man's voice quieted. This I cannot understand. It is not the Mantis way, even from our very beginning. Once your clan and mine were the same people, and when my ancestor Kamitsu Uo was not chosen as the crab champion, he left to forge his own path, and there was no bad blood between our people. We became different, not less. I think I divine your meaning, Taka said with a wry smirk. That is not so much how the crane do things. Yoritomo snorted, then sighed. Truly, I bear the crane no ill will, but more pity. Once Mantis and Crane were allies, and they trusted our skills as mercenaries. Our power was respected, and all understood the importance of trade across the waters. Now Crane eyes do not look over the sea with wonder to see lands beyond full of riches. They simply see a pretty view to be painted. They have grown self-absorbed, petty. And their labeling of you as pirates doesn't help much, I imagine, quipped Taka, eliciting a grin from the other man. It does not. But to be fair, we have done what needed doing, and where others shied away, we took responsibility. Something the Crab Clan knows all too well, I imagine. Taka nodded, and the two men leaned against the bow of the ship, Yoritomo a great deal more casually than Taka, and took in the view beyond. The bitter wind was moored near a marshy inlet, where sea and land birds alike hunted in the tall grasses as dusk approached. Tallest among them was a gray crane, regal in stature, who cocked its head and gazed into the water closely, tilting its head in minuscule motions as it struggled to track its prey in the murky water. I have great sympathy for your clan, you know. Taka glanced up at Yoritomo, whose eyes remained fixed on the hunting birds. The samurai of the Yasuki were given an impossible choice. Give up their power within a clan who disregarded them, or leave to join the crab and risk ruin in their attempt to earn greater respect. And starting the first and only inter-clan war as a result, Taka sighed, a fact at which the cranes still chafe. A paradox of fools, then, who treat the past as if it were present, and the present as if it were a dream. Yoritomo's eyes flickered to the sky, and wordlessly he pointed as a cumberant, feathers slick as oil, dove almost soundlessly into the water. Moments later, the gangly bird hopped out of the water, silvery fish wriggling in its beak. Yoritomo laughed and clapped his hands together in celebration, watching the cumberant gulp down its meal. Ah, and look, my favorite bird, he chuckled. Inelegant but adaptable. Changes to fit the situation it finds itself in, air or water, and succeeds. He smirked at Taka, tilting his head at the bird. I know well why you were sent to Otusan Uchi Yasugidono, but in its way, your mission was impossible. Crane's eye was watching you and the glitter of your scales beneath the waters. But now you are just a drab thing to them, neither fish nor bird, so they disregarded you and turn away, and that is why you have won.
Taka chuckled and threw up his hands. I fear I may have been out-bargained, and terms haven't even been discussed. The fearsome Yoritomo is a poet-sailor and knows I am a peddler lord. Very well, then. The sun is setting, and now is the opportune hour to make a deal. You know my needs. He fixed the Mantis Clan champion with a measured stare. And now I must know your terms. Yoritomo nodded and crossed his arms authoritatively across his broad chest. Smuggling is simply trade by another name. I have many fleets, with ships far less showy than this one, who could bring you a steady stream of the weapons that the Crab Clan so dearly requires. We lack only the means. Taco shook his head and grinned. A simple matter. It is nothing strange to ship barrels to a distillery, such as my friendly traveler Sake works. Weapons lie within the false bottoms, and we send you those same barrels back, replaced with the proper cost in coin. He spread his hand, all canny merchant. With a little sake in them, too, for the health of your troops. Yoritomo nodded his enthusiastic consent, and Takov carefully folded his arms in his sleeves, his gaze suddenly sharp. But, Yoritomo Dono, I cannot believe the Mantis are hurting for wealth, or have a particular craving for the Koku of the Crab Clan. There is something else that you want, and if you are not plain with it, I am afraid that we cannot truly help one another. Yoritomo's gaze hardened, and after a moment the large man nodded. I spoke earlier of divisions, and how they should not be so common. My clan sees little value between the minor clans and the great ones, of captain and sailor. When the wave breaks upon the deck, it pulls at my feet, same as any commoners. And my station will not save me if we found her in a storm. But I cannot be a leader and not strive for greater for my people. Our founder came from a great clan, and I would see the same greatness for we, his descendants, to prove we are worthy of his blood. But simply saying it does not make it so. His eyes bored into Taka's, dark as an oncoming storm. The Mantis require a great ally to help us make this claim. To argue for our cause with the Emperor or my hopes are for nothing. Yusuke Taka was silent a long moment, one finger idly tapping at his lips. Finally, he spoke in measured tones. You have my understanding and my sympathy, he said slowly. But such an act would require the approval of the Crab Clan champion, and I am not he. Yoritomo's gaze did not waver. Did not Lord Hidekasada send you to Otusan Uchi to gain what aid the crab required? Wouldn't that which I offer, not only weapons, but friendship, fit that bill? A tiny smile tugged the corner of his mouth, the brightness like a flash of lightning in his eyes. If you did not have his permission to act as you felt you must for the good of the clan, you would never have been sent in the first place. Taka narrowed his eyes in a glare, which turned into a wry grin, and laughter followed. I never would have thought I would be outmaneuvered in a deal twice in one day, he sighed, or that I would find myself grateful on both occasions. Very well, Yoritomo Dono, champion of the Mantis. When you stand and speak for the greatness of your clan, the crab will stand for you as well. Another smirk. And in the meantime, we could use those weapons you offered. A deal! 
Yoritomo cried, causing several birds nearby to look up, startled, and take wing. And there is something else I would speak to you about. Not a new deal precisely, but an addendum. Taka raised an eyebrow as a pair of sailors approached, a large chest held between them. At a gesture from Yoritomo, they threw open the lid, revealing the contents within covered by a cloth bearing the crane man. Carefully, the sailors stepped aside as Yoritomo reached down and pulled away the cloth, revealing row after row of gleaming jade rods. Wordlessly, Taka moved forward and picked up one of the slender slips of precious gemstone, turning it over in his hand. A battle at the Caillou Wall, and men shrieking as the taint consumed those unprotected by the power of the pale green material, blisters crawling out of their throats and across their faces. Courtiers at Utusan Uchi, idly fingering bracelets and pendants of carved jade, whose cast-off chips might have been able to save the life of a crab warrior. The music room of the palace. Kikita Yoshi's ice-blue stare, and his echoing, cruel farewell as he crushed the hope of Taka's bargain to save his people. In the growing dusk, the Comorant dove into the water once again, a black shape rippling beneath the waves. With a splash, the Comorant flew to perch atop the trunk, silvery fish in its mouth. With a single gulp, the gangly bird swallowed the succulent fish. Taka looked up at Yoritomo. The Yasuki Damio bowed deeply to the Mantis champion and grinned as he straightened back up. You've got a deal. Court Games by D.G. Laterout. Read by Trevor Cuba. Kikiriyoshi paused as Ambling strode through the gardens of the Crane Clan Embassy. A Karishima azalea caught his attention, its blossoms bright crimson under the morning sun. It was, of course, perfectly trimmed. Almost, but not quite, spherical, the slight asymmetry itself carefully crafted. Perfect imperfection, deliberately fashioned to complement the azalea's place in the garden. Yoshi smiled his appreciation at the unseen gardener. How satisfying it must be, he thought, to be able to design the very flaws that afflicted your subjects. People, unfortunately, came with their flaws already included. The best he could do was learn those flaws and then exploit them. Resentment, jealousy, ambition, lust. Every delegate to the imperial court had some imperfection, some failure of character that could be leveraged. The trick and the trouble was determining how to work with what you were given. It would be so much easier if, like the gardener, Yoshi could simply decide that this courtier pined for a particular woman, or that courtier craved opium. He could then arrange and shape the imperial court like this azalea, 
getting the precise outcome he desired every time. Yes, the gardener had it so much easier. Yoshi looked at a purple and yellow Xi'an blossom. It represented remembrance. I won't forget. He could still not forget the last time he was here. Yoshi walked along the winding path toward the Crane Clan embassy proper, but he stopped when someone appeared in his path before him, blocking his way. Yoshi began to frown his disapproval, to prepare a sharp rebuke for whoever hadn't immediately made way for him, but he stopped as he recognized the gray kimono embroidered with cranes in white. It was Kikita Toshimoko, who was known as the Gray Crane, his own brother. "'Here you are, Yoshi-san,' Toshimoko said, bowing. I heard that you found some time away from your duties as the Imperial Chancellor. Yoshi returned the bow. Greetings, brother. I see that, likewise, you have found yourself a chance to parade the gardens. Greeting conspiratorially, Toshimoko added, But it is even more beautiful in the softer of light of Lord Moon, with a fair woman by your side, eh? Yoshi suppressed a sigh. Toshimoko may be the reverend sensei of the Kikita Dueling Academy, mentor and closest advisor to Doji Hotaru, and former mentor to the emperor himself. But he was so ungraceful, sometimes even crude. Offering an indulgent smile, Yoshi replied, If you say so, brother. I do, Toshimoko said, but his grin faded. Still, you almost certainly have pressing business that demands your attention. You're not here to appreciate the foliage. What really brings you here? I have not met with Hotaru Ue since her arrival in Otosan Uchi, Yoshi said. I wish to offer my condolences to her regarding Lord Satsume prior to the funeral. The remainder of Toshimoko's grin vanished. Really? Condolences? Or congratulations? Yoshi started to open and raise his fan, the instinct of a practiced courtier concealing his shock at such an outrageous statement. Instead, he glared at Toshimoko. I did not realize that mastery of the sword entailed such a degradation of one's other qualities, such as simple decency and propriety. Bah, spare me your courtly facade of indignity, brother, he gestured at the Shion. That flower asks us to remember. Tenko threw herself off the cliffs of Kyun Doji because of Satsume. Hataru and I both remember. So should you. Regardless of your feelings, that is an unworthy way to speak of the dead, brother. Again, bah. The Shion only cares that Satsume is remembered, not how. If it is less and finally, then that is the burden to take into the next life, for he is the one who chose to bear it. Yoshi looked back at the Shion Blossom. I won't forget. Yoshi wouldn't, but not for the unworthy reasons Toshimoko offered. He wouldn't forget Satsumi because he had been a strong leader. And yes, a demanding one. But demanding excellence from your vassals was how you made them strong, too. Nor would he forget their sister who had thrown her life away in the despairing belief that she would never live up to Satsumi's expectations, rather than just trying harder to fulfill them, as was her duty. People, unfortunately, came with their flaws already included. Tenko's fatal fragility had been hers. Hotaru and Toshimoko had decided Satsume was the villain of the piece, though. It was a nostalgically revisionist view, a willful blindness brought on by their love of Tenko. For each, it was their own weakness, their own flaw. He looked back at Toshimoko. Satsume was a great man, he said. He represented and served our family, our clan, and our empire with honor. You may choose to remember him otherwise, but I will not let that be forgotten. He considered adding, He is the one now likely to be in Yomi, the realm of sacred ancestors, 
while Tank lingers in Mado, waiting to be judged. But he didn't. Another of Toshimoko's flaws was passion. It made him easy to provoke, something Yoshi knew only too well. As children, he had once goaded Toshimoko too far over something. He couldn't even recall the reason now. Toshimoko had knocked him into a koi pond and held him there, thrashing futilely, almost drowning him. The furative wet sounds and movements of koi made Yoshi shudder and draw away even to this day. Toshimoko simply glared back at Yoshi. I do not deny Satsume's service, nor his contributions, brother. Just keep in mind, when you see Hotaru, that her feelings about him, like mine, are strong. Of course. A nearby stand of cherry trees swayed greenly in the sunlight, all traces of their petals gone. They had bloomed weeks ago, before Okoto Arasao had been slain, before the dissolution of a vital unicorn-lion marriage, before the heir of the crane, Doji Kawanid, had come under attack in the Yosari Plains, before the kidnapping of Yusuke Taka and the hostage-taking of Kikita Asami. Kikita Yuri awaited him near the gazebo, a perfect mask of cordiality betraying no hint of concern for his daughter's well-being. The man bowed deeply. Greetings, Kikita Ue. Greetings, Yuri-san. You say you have important matters you need to discuss. And away from the Imperial Court, no less. Yes, your lordship. The Unicorn continued gathering support for their petition. A new law, I believe, declaring Toshirambo an Imperial holding. They do. It would appear that Bayushi Shoju has now endorsed their efforts as well. That leaves only the Lion in opposition, Yoshi sniffed. Hardly surprising. If the Emperor approves this petition, they stand to lose the most. My lord, it would be most desirable to have the Unicorn Petition be the first order of business for the court when it reconvenes. As the Imperial Chancellor, you can oversee the court's agenda, so you can ensure this happens. Ordinarily, he would only entertain such a request in return for something useful. That the request came from his own clan, and one of his direct vassals, made little difference. As Chancellor, he served only the Emperor. Moreover, this man had done no more than was expected of him in sending his daughter to Lionlands to negotiate. Hasta's taking was hardly unusual, especially in light of the losses the lion had suffered at Tojirambo. And yet, Ikoma Ujiaki of the lion had all but demanded to be granted the first petitioner's slot. And certainly, the lion clan delegation had offered nothing useful to the chancellor, assuming instead that the slot was theirs by right. I see no reason, Yoshi said, why the unicorn petition cannot be the first item on the agenda. I shall make the necessary arrangements. Kikita Yuri's face remained expressionless, but he bowed. Thank you. I shall inform the rest of the Crane delegation. Yuri nodded, bowed again, and started back toward the embassy. And Yuri-san, the other man paused, we shall ensure no harm comes to Lady Asami or her retinue. Thank you, my lord. At that, he bowed once more, even more deeply, and excused himself. Yoshi gave the Shion Blossom a final look, then carried on. Continue his stroll through the gardens. The Imperial Audience Chamber of Rokugan was the epicenter of the Empire's politics, a vast soaring space at the heart of the palace in the Forbidden City. A place of mirror-polished stone and dark wood, its ponderous expanse accommodated the legions of courtiers, bureaucrats, and ministers who were the ceaseless machinery of Rokugani governance. Everything there was impeccably tailored, precisely arranged, and entirely choreographed. 
It was as far and different a place from the grime, blood, and confusion of a battlefield as one could possibly imagine. But to Kikita Yoshi, there really was no difference. The Imperial Court was very much a battlefield, one where the consequences were often as dire as were the slash and thrust of Katana and Yari. And not just a battlefield at that, but THE battlefield, the one that mattered most. Wars were won or lost there, before a single samurai even donned their armor. To underscore the point, he carried a Tessin, a warfan whose bamboo ribs were cunningly lacquered and shaped to nearly the strength and sharpness of a katana blade. It was very much a weapon, something prohibited in the court, but he was the imperial chancellor, and the court was his to govern. Only the emperor or the emerald champion might gainsay him. The concerns of everyone else were irrelevant. Holding his fan prominently, Yoshi mounted the great dais, a massive edifice of polished stone and wood that loomed over the chamber. Upon each successfully higher level of the dais sat correspondingly higher-ranking court officials, culminating with the emperor himself at the pinnacle, upon the massive chrysanthemum throne. Pillars to either side bore inscriptions of wisdom. All is right with the world on the right, and rever heaven, love people on the left. Yoshi reached his own place on the level immediately below the throne, and then turned and faced the court. Hundreds of courtiers knelt. Blocks of color representing the great clans of Rokugan, the imperial families, and several of the minor clans. They all waited for him to return their collective bow. First, though, he cast a critical eye over the proceedings. Failure in even the most minute detail would bring shame to the perpetrator, and then apology, dismissal to some distant obscure post, or even seppuku. But everything was as it should be, a fact that left Yoshi both satisfied and slightly disappointed. He let the moment linger a bit longer then bowed to acknowledge the court's obeisance. As one, the assembly straightened. The only exception was Byuchi Kachiko, the imperial advisor, who knelt on the same level of the great dais as Yoshi, to the emperor's left, whereas his own place was to the right. Of equal status, she hadn't bowed and simply acknowledged Yoshi with a nod. He returned it, noting that she had only just taken her place before him. Normally, she arrived in court well before he did probably to oversee some petty scheme or other. He looked away. A most unpleasant woman, as vile and dangerous as her clan's namesake, Scorpion. Like everyone else, she had flaws, of course, but Yoshi wasn't sure what they were. Kachiko was wrapped in too many veils of obfuscation and secrecy. Eventually, though, he would tear them away. And then... The great doors swung open, and Yoshi pushed Kachiko from his mind. Like every person present in court, he prostrated himself, forehead touching the floor. The steady tread of Kokage, armored shoes, presaged the entrance of a squad of the Sepun Honor Guard. Behind followed the procession of retainers and more Miharu, the subservient retinue of a single man, Hantai the 38th, the Emperor of Rokugan. With utter precision, the Miharu and myriad functionaries separated and moved to their places. The Emperor, followed by the Imperial Herald and other officials, ascended the great dais. When the emperor reached his place at the top, he turned, facing the court, and offered a simple bow before taking his place on the throne. Moving as one, the court rose, but remained kneeling. A pause, then Yoshi stood. Loyal samurai of Rokugan, he said, it is my honor and privilege to declare this session of the imperial court on this tenth day of the month of Okoto, in the year 1123, by the calendar of Asala, to be convened. As he spoke, his voice carried throughout the chamber, carried to every corner by the cunning design of the palace. 
May the 10,000 fortunes guide your thoughts, words, and deeds as you engage in the momentous business of the Empire on this day. Yoshi paused and cast one more glance across the court. The ink brushes of the scribes were poised, ready to record the proceedings in minute detail. At the back of the chamber, the various delegations were lined up, each ready to approach the great dais in turn. The lion had lobbied furiously to take the first petition slot, likely to preempt the unicorn. Yoshi had, unfortunately, only been able to offer them the third. Following a dragon delegation seeking to petition the court about their troubles with the heretical perfect land sect, the glare of the lion delegation head, Ikoma Ujiaki, was on him like a beam of hot sunlight. Yoshi ignored it. All was ready. Yoshi raised his fan to signal that the first delegation should approach, but stopped that movement behind him. The emperor stood, apparently, to speak. Yoshi immediately lowered his fan. This was unexpected. Yet it was the emperor's prerogative to do whatever he wished, so that he simply turned to hear what the Son of Heaven would say. Samurai of Rokugan, prior to the commencement of this court's work, I will address a grave matter. The Empire recently suffered a grievous loss with the death of Doji Satsume, the Emerald Champion. I wish to commemorate Satsume-san and to recognize, with gratitude, his loyalty and tireless efforts to the betterment of the Empire. Silence reigned for a moment before the Emperor continued. Lord Satsume's death has, of course, left the position of Emerald Champion vacant. I have instructed the Imperial Herald to arrange for the test of the Emerald Champion to be held at a time and place yet to be determined in order that the celestial heavens, in their wisdom, may ordain a new incumbent for this reverent office. Another pause. Yoshi glanced back at the court, ensuring the delegations remained ready to approach when the emperor finished speaking. Finally, I am issuing an edict. The ascension of a new emerald champion, by means of the customary tournament, is an ancient tradition and one that contributes directly to the stability of the empire. To further ensure that stability, I am decreeing that, until such a time as a new Emerald Champion has assumed the august position of Chief Magistrate of Rokugan, no existing Imperial laws will be amended or appealed, and no new Imperial laws will be proposed or enacted. With that decree in place, the business of this court may now commence. A decree? No new laws? No laws amended? Why? Why had the Emperor done this? And why hadn't he been informed? He was the Chancellor. Such a proclamation should not be a surprise to him. Were the other surprises lurking in court? Instinct almost caused Yoshi to raise his fan, concealing his shock, as dozens of lesser courtiers did throughout the chamber. But he didn't have that luxury. Fortunately, a flawless facade, cultivated over years in court, allowed him to maintain a nearly perfect expression of bland neutrality. Yoshi looked to the far end of the chamber. The Emperor's decree had rendered the Unicorn's petition suddenly pointless. As Ide Tadaji stepped aside, allowing the dragon to take his place, Yoshi sensed his surprise and disappointment. He exchanged a brief glance with Kikita Yuri, standing with a crane, and could feel his shocked discomfiture as well. Yoshi carefully maintained his mask as the dragon approached the great dais. The lion moved eagerly into place behind them, their simmering resentment replaced with enthusiastic satisfaction. Why had the Emperor done this? Move it to his left snagged Yoshi's attention. Bayushi Kachiko had begun fanning herself. Her fan depicted a castle landscape and a young maiden. Yoshi's grip tightened on his own fan. 
Kachiko had been uncharacteristically late arriving in court. Where exactly had she been? With the Emperor? For her part, Kachiko's interest seemed only to lie with the approaching dragon. She did, however, favor Yoshi with a brief look, a fleeting glimpse that told him nothing. And everything. His knuckles tightened again, whitening. Like everyone else, she had flaws, but Yoshi wasn't sure what they were. She was wrapped in too many veils of obfuscation and secrecy. Yoshi turned away from Kachiko. The Xi'an flowers in the gardens of the crane still held their promise. I will not forget. Flying Chariot Standing by Gareth Michael Skarka Read by Jeannie Kelvar A shogi opening move is like choosing a medicine. Pick the right one and you gain strength. Pick the wrong one and you die. Agasha Sagan, Shogi Master Waiting was an insult. Yet, Ide Tadaji endured. The Unicorn Clan ambassador shook his sleeves, casting off a bit of the rain which had soaked him on his walk to the Mia Palace, and he drew closer to the small brazier of coals which had been lit to counter the damp of early summer. Towns and villages across Rokugan were mired in mud from the torrential rains of the season and although the Forbidden City was saved from that fate by its cobblestone streets, it was just as wet. Rain, Rain falls, falls upon, upon emperor, emperor and peasant, peasant alike, Tadaji mused, recalling the passage from the Tao of Sensei. It had certainly fallen today. The walk from his permanent residence at the Unicorn Clan guesthouse was not terribly far, but the rain had been a constant and unwelcome companion and made the walk seem even further for a man with a club foot. By the time Tadaji had reached the palace of the Mia family, it felt as though he had been pushing his way through a waterfall, and his clothes hung from his frame like wet moss from a tree. His foot, which had kept him from riding the horses of his clan his entire life, now ached terribly. He shifted his weight as best he could, leaning heavily upon his cane. As tradition dictated, Tadaji had walked alone, save for a single bodyguard. Even though this visit was unofficial, no ambassador, much less a family daimyo, could be expected to travel without some protection, even within the safest part of the capital. His bodyguard was a formidable one. Utaku Kumoko had ridden hard all the way to Odasan Uchi, 
charged with delivering news directly to the emperor from the unicorn clan champion herself, Shinjo Altansarnai. She was not at all pleased to discover that a samurai, even the commander of the feared battle maidens of the unicorn, would not be permitted to address the emperor directly. As official ambassador to the imperial court, that duty fell to a Tadaji. But when the time came to choose a bodyguard for his visit, he knew he could choose none other than the fierce warrior who had ridden the breadth of Rokugan. It was a way to allow her to be present at the delivery of the news, thereby fulfilling her obligation. Komoko made it very clear that she viewed this as only a marginally acceptable solution, but grudgingly accepted her duty with a minimum of outbursts, a rarity for the fiery battle maiden. Tajaji smiled inwardly as he saw her, glowering like a thundercloud in a corner of the room, away from the heat of the coals. The unofficial visit allowed Ide Tadaji to deliver bad news privately. Mia Satoshi, the imperial herald and daimyo of the Mia family of heralds, would hear the news and pass it along to the emperor, away from the eyes and ears of the court, so that the chrysanthemum throne could have time to formulate a response, rather than having it dropped in its lap during open court. It was a courtesy, albeit an expected one, and despite its unofficial nature, it was as clothed in ritual and tradition as any other function of government. Tradition which, by making Tadaji wait, Mia Satoshi was violating. The herald was occasionally a brash man, a trait which did not serve a diplomat well, in Tadaji's opinion. The slight insult of the weight was, he was sure, intended to remind the Unicorn Clan where it stood in the overall scheme of things. That standing would not be improved by the news. Perhaps it would earn the Unicorn some form of imperial censure, or worse. Tadaji shook his head, dismissing the thought. There was no point in ruminating upon his fears. What is done is done. The reception room was largely featureless. Tazaji chose to stand near the brazier in order to dry off a bit, but had not counted on being made to stand for so long. His foot had already been protesting, but now his legs had begun to ache, as much from the long walk and the damp as from the standing. The only places to sit were prepared at a shogi board, which was placed prominently in the center of the room. The rectangular board with its carved squares, was set for play, the two groups of pieces arrayed at each player's end of the board, facing the opponent. A platform for captured pieces was set to the right of each player's seat. It was a beautiful set, finely crafted from lacquered wood. Do you play, Kamoko-san? The silence that had filled the room was broken, but if Kamoko was surprised, she did not show it. The response came instantly. I do not. Tadaji nodded, regarding the board. I do not care for the game myself. I prefer Go, in its simplistic purity, black stones and white stones, offering a clarity that Shogi does not possess. The pieces in Shogi had no identifying color, their allegiance determined only by the direction they faced, toward their opponent. When a player captured an opposing piece, it was removed from the board but could be brought back into play, now used by that player, among their own original pieces. 
Each piece had its own unique set of moves as well, moves which changed and grew more complicated if the piece could be promoted by moving it into the opposition's territory. The piece was turned over, revealing a different symbol, signifying its changed status. Generals said that shogi reflected the truth of war. Diplomats said the game echoed the complexity and maneuvering of the court. Both saw the game as a metaphor for the conflicts of their chosen paths. This was largely why Tadaji preferred other games. He had enough of those conflicts in his day-to-day life. He did not desire to seek them out in metaphor, in his leisure. He far preferred to spend his time playing Go with Shishoro Takaru. Their long games, played on one of the islands in the Imperial Water Garden, were a great source of solace to both men. The game seems clear enough to me, Tadashi-sama, said Komoko, but very much a game of Rokugan. I cannot fathom a war game that features no cavalry. Tadaji smiled. She was right, of course. The game featured a piece called the Cassia Horse, meant to represent a mounted samurai, but no cavalry in any sense that the Unicorn Clan would understand. The closest equivalent in Shogi was the Flying Chariot, able to move the full range of the board forward, backward, or side to side. Along with its companion piece, the Angle Mover, which possessed a similar range but diagonal, it was one of the most powerful pieces on the board, possessed of the greatest fields of motion. That sounded like cavalry to Tadaji, no matter what name they had given it. "'I'm sorry to have kept you waiting, Tadaji-sama,' a new voice rang out in the confines of the room. Mia Satoshi had entered through a sliding screen, which unseen servants in the hallway beyond silently slid closed behind him. The Imperial Herald was dressed in the relatively plain clothes of a lord at home in his palace, rather than his usual courtly finery. Tadaji bristled slightly. Compounding the insult of being made to wait, Satoshi had referred to him as Sama, rather than the Dono, more appropriate to Tadaji's station as the Ide family daimyo. Satoshi was of high enough status that Tadaji would look foolish in correcting him, but Satoshi had nevertheless afforded the unicorn daimyo less respect than he deserved. If Satoshi has heard the news already, through spies or some other means, these provocations may be purposeful, rather than merely the errors of a brash man. I believe you have something you wish for me to pass along to the emperor? Satoshi drew his robes around him and sat at one of the players' seats at the shogi board. Let us pass some time while we speak. Do you play? Tadaji crossed the room and took the other seat, searching Satoshi's expression, trying to get a read on the man. Does he know? On occasion, Satoshi-san. Only on occasion. Satoshi gestured to the board in a broad sweeping move of his hand. He was obviously proud of its beauty and the status indicated by its presence in his home. As an honored guest, you may have the first move. Tajaji shook his damp sleeves in front of the brazier one final time and took his seat across from Satoshi. The The first first move move was was made long before I even arrived. arrived. All that remains now is to see how the game plays out.
As the servants held the doors open, the Takukumoko fell into step at Ide Tadaji's left, the traditional place for a bodyguard, covering the undefended side. Although Tadaji held a cane in his right hand, making it unlikely he could draw a weapon to cover the defense of his right. Within moments, they had left the Mia Palace and entered the streets of the Forbidden City. Thankfully, the torrential downpour that had accompanied them on their earlier journey had abated somewhat, and they now contended only with a light rain. Komoko exhaled. The rain on her face was a cool relief compared to the stale heat of the room. Whether the heat stemmed from the design of the palace itself, or from the tension of the meeting, she did not know. But it reminded her of one surety. She belonged on the plains. Enough of these machinations. She would just as soon ride back to Alton Sarnai and her fellow battle maidens and leave this place far behind. The complexities of the capital were more foreign to her than the Doombeck or the Rick of the Burning Sands. Ide Tadashi had talked with the Imperial Herald, Mia Satoshi, for over an hour as they played shogi. Their low voices did not carry to where she stood, however making the conversation as much a mystery as the progress of a game of unnecessary complexity. She'd never given the game a thought before, and yet now it seemed to have so much riding upon it. It was a perfect metaphor for diplomacy in Rokugan. Rules handed down for generations, barely understood by outsiders, yet fraught with consequences. For Shinjo Alton Sarnai to refuse the marriage offer of Ikoma Anakazu of the Lion Clan was a violation of those pointless rules. She had been asked to give up too much. Her duty to her clan as the champion, her true love and father of her three children, Ayuchi Dayu, her honor, the cost was too high for peace with a clan that the unicorn need not be concerned by. Ide Tadaji had been one of the brokers of that peace, however, and now he was tasked with delivering the news of its failure to the chrysanthemum throne. If it means war, then so be it. The treacherous lion have been a burr beneath our saddle for far too long. The only question was the imperial reaction. If the emperor sided with the lion, the unicorn might end up faced with more than just their long-time rival as an enemy. The imperial court could strip them of their lands, their status, making them truly outcast. They've always treated us as outsiders. Gaijin, they call us. This could be their opportunity to drive us out completely. All depended on this meeting. The fate of an entire clan hanging in the balance of a game played by two men, trading words as they traded captured pieces on the board. Better for such things to be decided in the field, astride a horse with a scimitar in hand, rather than constrained by the complexities of tradition and diplomacy. As they walked, Komoko dared not say anything to Tadaji. She was not sure she could even trust him, much less predict how he would react. Tadaji stopped her with a gentle, unexpected hand on her arm and gestured to a nearby stone bench overlooking one of the Forbidden City's many koi ponds. Let us take a moment, Komoko-san. They sat, watching the fish gliding just beneath the surface of the water the golds, pinks, reds, and whites of their scales the only color on the gray day. The surface of the water was a never-ending dance of circles, crossing over each other, combining, separating, and rebounding, rippling outward from the drops of rain hitting the pond. 
Even here everything is tangled. She had to begin untangling it somewhere. The Herald had someone observe the meeting, hidden behind a screen. Tadaji nodded. I assumed as much. The news will travel fast. And how is the news taken? Does the clan face censure? Flying chariot standing, was Tadaji's only reply. Komoko waited for further explanation. He leaned forward, resting his chin on his hands, crossed atop his cane, and watched the fish swim. I do not understand, Tadaji-sama. Neither did I, at first. Tadaji shook his head, as if to clear it, and turned to face her with kind eyes. It is part of that game that you don't play. There are a number of traditional strategies for winning the game, and many of them rely on the piece known as the flying chariot, taking advantage of its wide range of movement. Satoshi, however, kept his chariots back and began to move his more valuable pieces to the spaces behind them. Using them as bodyguards, Komoko offered, trying on the terminology of the game. Not exactly. The strategy was known as flying chariot standing, which uses the chariots as a bulwark, as you said. But the primary purpose is to use the opponent's knowledge of the strengths of the chariot against him, to make them worry about why you are not deploying the chariots to their strengths. And this is designed to draw an opponent in, to make your opponent defeat himself, in essence. I see, she lied although Tadaji probably saw through her lie far more easily than the hidden observer had seen the meeting through the screen. Tadaji waved his hand, as if dispelling the lie like shooing away a fly. It is more complex than that, of course, but that is the heart of it. It made me realize something. I saw that Satoshi viewed any potential clash between lion and unicorn as something in the best interests of the chrysanthemum throne. Komoko's eyebrows shut up. He wants us to go to war? Not precisely. It is likely that he doubts it will come to that, and if it does, he and the Emperor stand ready to censure one or both sides. Yet, infighting between the clans has long been the aim of the Imperials, especially the Atomo, although the Mia family was once known as the bridge between the clans. War would keep us and the lion occupied with each other, with neither able to grow strong enough to be an unbalancing element. The outsider Gaijin, with their unparalleled cavalry, Tadaji struck Komoko's armor with a light tap, making sure the right hand of the emperor, the lion, does not become too strong, and the reverse as well. And if the lion begin to wear themselves out against us in the northwest, Perhaps they will grow more cautious against the Crane Clan in the east. As if the lion could offer any obstruction to the unicorn at all. The emperor and the court sit behind their bulwark while we defeat ourselves. Komoko's eyes widened. She nodded. Flying chariot standing. No matter the intentions of the throne, however, it freed the unicorn to demonstrate their strength against the lion once and for all, without imperial interference. The challenge was as achievable as it was long overdue. After a moment's silence, broken only by the occasional splash of koi breaking the surface of the pond, Tadaji sighed. 
I found myself wondering how much of that was Mia Satoshi's opinion, and how much was Otomo Sarai's, or the Emperor's, or, if, in the end, there's any real difference at all. I fear for what lies ahead, Kamoko-san. He leaned heavily upon his cane as he stood, taking a moment to give one last look at the pond before leaving. Kamoko followed close behind him, then stopped. Kamoko remembered how the Imperial Herald had stood suddenly, scowling like he had swallowed a frog, and ended the meeting so abruptly that it did not border upon rudeness, but rode directly over it like a cavalry charge through infantry. Kamoko cleared her throat. Tajaji-sama, if Satoshi-sama is hoping for the unicorn and the lion to exhaust ourselves, why was he so displeased by the news? Tadaji smiled. Oh, he wasn't displeased by the news. He was angry because once I identified his shogi strategy, I beat him. Rather quickly, in fact. Kamoko blinked. I told you that I do not care for the game, Kamoko-san. Not that I'm not good at it. Honor, Loyalty, Duty Written by Mary Murdoch Read by Trevor Cuba Ichiro applied his blade to the soft, pulpy surface of the wood a curled shaving, and then another, like tongues of fire, rose and fell onto a furoshiki he had placed on the floor to catch them. Yujiro tapped his knife on the bench to let the wood slivers fall. The staccato mirrored the rain's rhythm. Tap, tap. Tap. Tap, tap, tap. A gardener dressed in simple brown ducked from behind the gate, a paper parasol draped over his shoulder. An improbable figure... The gardener stared at him just a little too long before beginning to collect fallen leaves from the gravel pathway with a set of brass tongs. Yojiro continued to carve, his knife occasionally knocking the slivers from his work. Tap, tap, tap. Kigos issued from inside the embassy as a group of ladies approached a second-story window. Lady Kachigo's langorious voice rose from the other women's. The shutter opened, and the courtiers sighed at the sight. Ah, the soft summer sun, Kachiko called out the window. Shall we enjoy the view while we play our game? Yes. Hanafuda while we watch the flowers. How poignant, another woman replied. Yujiro recognized the voice as Shoshiro Hatsuko, Kachiko's favorite geisha spy. As their game commenced, the lacquered wooden cards fell upon the table with methodical clacks, also mirroring the rain's beat. Click, 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 click. Yujiro tapped his knife again. Tap, tap. The connection was established. Yujiro listened for the clicks of the Hanafuda cards above, translating them into the words he had been ordered to wait for. Click. Click, click, click. The sounds issued from the window, nearly muffled by the shower, but Yojiro heard every word clearly. Magistrate. Power. Tournament. <laughs> <laughs>
Yajiro transposed the coded words in his mind. Kachigo was referring to his position as an Emerald Magistrate, an honor that gave him control over planning the Emerald Championship Tournament. Bayushi Shoji's brother, Aramaro, the Scorpion Contender, was to fight in the final match in a few days' time. He answered, tapping his knife on the wood before him, knocking shavings to the floor. Yes, my lady. You know, ladies, Kachigo said out loud, her words nothing more than a smokescreen for the true conversation. I'm afraid that my recent visit to the Crane Courtiers was disappointing, the gardener approached. His work brought him directly beneath Kachiko's window to scoop leaves from a koi pond with a long bamboo net. The gardener would hear nothing. Kikita Yuri completely lacked style, Kachiko continued. Who knew a fine kimono could be ruined when its wearer's pride crumples into stubbornness? Yeah, something about the twist of a pig-headed expression throws off the balance of the patterns, Hatsuko answered. Someone really ought to tell Yuri-san that clothes do not make a man. The man makes the clothes. The Hanafuda cards continue to fall. Click, 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 click. Tournament. Scorpion. Win. Yujiro paused, his reply at the tips of his fingers. A twinge in his stomach stopped him short. Kachiko was asking him to sabotage the tournament, to use his crafting to ensure Aramaro became the Emerald Champion. He frowned. He could picture Kachiko's face above. Her full, crimson lips tilted into her knowing yet fathomless smile, savoring of the delight of the plot. Her message continued. You. Clever. You. Win. He'd imagine her eyes, dark and mysterious, a tinge of flirtation. So often he saw those eyes beside the Emperor. There, sitting in his regal majesty, the Hantai's gentle eyes extended toward heaven. The trusting, guileless wisdom from which he spoke his strong hand resting upon the chrysanthemum throne. Such a sabotage would be treason, Yajiro reminded himself. Even worse, a personal insult to the emperor, blasphemy under the rule of heaven. Yet Yajiro could not fully banish from his mind Kachiko's face, her ambitious gaze blazing with immutable loyalty to the scorpion, the same fealty which he had already devised a way to sabotage the tournament the moment she had asked. He sighed. Above all else, he was a servant to his clan. Above his honor, above his soul, he plied his knife. I serve Scorpion. It is a relief that the fighting between the lion and the crane must cease during the duration of the Emerald Champion Tournament, Kachiko said, her sincerity seemingly unfeigned. It should bring a few days of peace, more than we could have hoped for. Craft well, Yojiro. Craft wise. A peace well earned, replied Hatsuko. War is such an ugly thing. I serve. My lady. The gardener shot a suspicious glance at Yujiro, but he ignored it. I wait. Good fortune. Yujiro carefully wrapped his pile of wood shavings in his furoshiki and tucked it into his sleeve. He met the eyes of the gardener again before stepping out into the rain and to hand him his carving. A small wooden crane for a crane spy. Mortified, the gardener stood paralyzed at being discovered, so Yujiro tucked it into the man's obi before walking away. He had another project to work on. Its upward-sweeping points pricked the sides of his face, caging him within his turmoil. Honor? Dishonor? Am I a traitor? Whom would I be a traitor to? Yoji-kun, what's troubling you? Yuji had forgotten he was walking with his sister. It's nothing, Michan. Otomo Mikuro cast him a suspicious glare, over-exaggerating in a mocking style of her usually impeccable acting skills. 
Your anxiety is playing on your face. That stiff collar hides nothing from me, brother. Yajiro hesitated. His sister had always been more stalwart than him in her loyalty. Trained from a young age as an exceptional actress, she volunteered at only ten years of age to take part in a deceptive plot involving an Otomo representative visiting Kyuden Bayushi. She had done well. Now that she was married into the Otomo household, her ploys continued hourly, and she loved every minute. Even if I hide nothing from you, Mi-chan, it does not mean I can just say what comes to mind. We are no longer secret-sharing children. So you have a secret, then? Her smile stretched far across her cheeks. She paused on the wooden plank path to stare at the tournament grounds. The path led to an array of brightly painted risers clothed in banners hued and marked for the seven clans. They enclosed a spacious marble demonstration floor in an octagon, the emperor's dais decorated with emerald silk and chrysanthemums making up the eighth side. Is your secret about the upcoming tournament? Makuru asked. Yojiro nodded. Is it about the real reason why the tournament is being held at the capital city? But Yushi Koshiyu and I have been arguing about gossip regarding the Emperor's displeasure with the state of the Palace of the Emerald Champion. I heard Dochi Satsumi left the castle in quite disarray. There's no scandal, Yujiro sighed, wary of quelling the rumors. Our blessed Emperor is merely getting too aged to travel. Honestly, Michan, have you ever heard of Champion Satsumi and the word disarray in the same sentence before that rumor? Makaro laughed out loud, unbecoming of a court lady. I suppose you're right. But for having the reputation as the only honest scorpion, you are being very tight-lipped. What is your secret really, Yoji-kun? Yujiro gazed into her fresh face, barely seeing the tinge of a concern at the crook of her ever-poised mouth. Whom am I willing to betray? He shook his head. I'm sorry. He drew a long silk parcel from his sleeve and offered it to her. A present. I made this for you. She unraveled the silk to reveal a kansashi which sparkled blindingly in the sunlight. She touched the delicate mirrored beads that fell in an arcing spray from the end. One of the beads lay fixed in place, a tiny corner tangled in the silk threading while the others lingled free, Yujiro's skill hidden in a seeming flaw. Am I going to wear this at the tournament, Yujiro? He nodded, careful to hide an uncontrollable twitch in his frown from his sister behind his high collar. You and your husband's family have seats on the Emperor's dais. You are to help Aramoro win by blinding his opponent with this. You'd be able to master it in only a few minutes. She touched her brother's sleeve. And your worry? What ails your heart in this endeavor? Shouldn't Mir's reflection be contested, you must offer to commit seppuku for the dishonor of the accident. Mikaro smiled, undisturbed by the command. Are you worried it will come to that? That will I have to die? Yujiro shook his head, sweeping the prospect aside. No, Mi-chan. What I worry about is more subtle, and all the more tormenting. Betraying the Emperor's trust is not a light thing to consider. You are right, it is not. Makaro started walking, stepping only when she stood right before the Emperor's dais. She gently slashed the kanzashi into the intricate loops of hair coiled upon her head and bowed as though preparing for an audience. She lifted her head, the same firebird her eyes that Yujiro had often seen in Kachikos. The loyalty beyond death, the ambition for power. Kachigo's presence had intimidating him into burning with that fire, her fervor consuming him. Yet seeing it reflected in his own sister's eyes twisted his stomach. What does the Emperor trust you to do? Yujiro thought a moment. As Emerald Magistrate, I must fulfill my duties to the best of my abilities and serve Rokugan with dignity and equanimity. Makaro turned to look at the scorpion banner that hung above one of the stands. The Emperor trusts Lord Soju to do that too, Yojiro. She turned back to him. 
and Lord Soju trusts me to do the same, even at the cost of my own life. Makara bowed to her brother, flashing the setting sun right in his eyes with the mirrored beads of her new hair ornament. She smiled, amused with her new skill, and departed. Yujiro blinked the spots of his vision away, remembering his cunning, fathomless champion. Soju's masked face betrayed nothing, yet his eyes pierced through a man to his very soul, beyond his lessened weaknesses into his core. Those eyes were always shrewd, savage perhaps, yet clear with no fire of ambition burning in them like those of Kachiko. Suddenly, Yojiro could see Kachiko's ambition stained all over this Emerald Championship plot. She and Aramura would risk dishonor for the possibility of power in the name of their clan. However, Soju would not risk the Emperor's trust on such a blatant scheme as sabotaging the tournament, even for the power the Emerald Championship afforded. Yojiro took a lingering look at the Emperor's dais. Soju's loyalty to the Empire could be trusted, his motives ever for the sake of Rokugan. There was honor in that. Your sentiments are right, Ichan. I must be the man Lord Soju can trust to protect Rokugan, even at the cost of my own clan. If I must tip the scales in Aramoro's favor, so too shall I tip the scales for his opponent, until they are balanced once more. Bright Flame of the World's Glory by Nancy M. Sawyer Read by Jeannie Calvar Bayushi Aramoro grasped the hilt of his katana and drew it out in one swift motion. He drove the blade forward with all his power, and the top section of the bamboo pole standing in front of him went flying off into the garden. Aramoro walked over to the pole to examine it, running his fingers over the cut surface. It was well done, but not perfect, and he needed perfection, or its equivalent. In a week's time, the test of the Emerald Champion would be held, and Aramoro had to win it. His lord was counting on him. His clan was counting on him. Kachiko was counting on him. The gravel behind him crunched slightly, and Aramoro turned around to glare at the servant kneeling on the path. I said I was not to be disturbed. My lord, it is Magistrate Bayushi Yojiro. He wishes to see you. Aramoro's irritation vanished. One should not keep an emerald magistrate waiting, he said. Bring him here at once. He kept the excitement out of his voice. Yojiro's devotion to honor marked him a fool. But he was an obedient fool. His presence here meant he had found a way to carry out Kachiko's orders. A few minutes later, Yojiro was ushered into the garden. He did not wear the traditional mask of a scorpion samurai, 
preferring instead to wear robes with high collars that shadowed the lower part of his face. Aramoro could see the other man's face clearly, and that face showed nothing but proper samurai reserve. It was a very good mask. Yojiro did not speak, but simply bowed in greeting. Aramoro returned the bow and waited silently until he heard the servant leave the garden. You have something for me. Yes, my lord. Yojiro slipped his hand into one of his sleeves and produced a woman's hairpin. It was an elaborate confection of small paper flowers that dangled around a large central bead set with irregular shards of mirror. This is your victory. What? Aramora said. This is. A sudden flash of sunlight filled his eyes, blinding him. He held up an arm in reflex while blinking furiously. When he looked back, Yojiro was holding up the mirrored bead. Some time ago, we inserted an agent into the Otomo family by marrying her to an Otomo courtier. I have given her a hairpin just like this one, which she will wear when attending the final duel of the tournament. I know where the members of the Otomo family will be seated, and I will arrange for the final duel to be held at a time to give her the best possible sun angle to work with. She will blind your opponent, and you will strike. Ingenious. Armoro said. But what if someone else notices the flash? It is unlikely, Yojira said. He gave a shrug that Aramoro thought was a little too casual, but he couldn't be certain. If it comes to official notice, she will be horrified that her fidgeting disrupted the duel and will tearfully beg to commit seppuku so as to remove any dishonor from the Otomo family. Yes, that will do. Aramoro said. You have brought me Amaterasu's own favor. Well done. Kachiko, now I will be even closer by your side. The sun was near the horizon and shadows were long on the ground as Okoto Totori walked to his tent. He took a deep breath to clear his mind. One more duel, one more victory and the first stage of his plan would be complete. He followed the path around a corner and almost ran into another samurai standing in his way. As the two sorted themselves out, Toturi noticed first the red and black colors of the scorpion, and then the face of the man who wore them, Bayushi Yojiro. He tensed. In his study of the Emerald Champion and the magistrates who served him, Toturi had come across frequent mentions of Yojiro, the honest scorpion. The man had been in imperial service for years, and at every moment he had acted as an honorable samurai whose only goal was to faithfully serve the emperor. This meant either that Yojiro was one of the rare honorable scorpions, or that he was better than most at concealing his dishonor. It was an exquisitely dangerous ambiguity. My apologies, Akodo-sama, Yojiro said as he bowed. I should not have allowed myself to become so distracted. We will not speak of it, Totori said. Is there a problem? I know the Emerald Magistrates have been very busy these past few days. Not at all, Yujira said. I was simply taking a moment to appreciate the sunset. These things show us the bright flame of the world's glory. Totori recognized the quote from the classic play at once, 
and his eyes narrowed a bit as he stared at the scorpion. And the darkness that covers all when the pyre's flame dies, he recited back. Yojiro smiled warmly. Indeed, indeed, he said. And now I must depart, as you note. I have many duties during the tournament. He bowed deeply and left. A heart filled with Bushido could not be troubled. Sotatori had been taught from childhood, and this morning as he sat in meditation, he sought the calm that came from the certain knowledge of honorable behavior. But disturbance lapped at him, like faint ripples on a deep, still pond. His clanmates thought to distance him from the rest of the clan by bestowing one of the highest honors in the land upon him. He would be forced to spend most of his time away from Shiro Okoto and the rest of the generals. All the while, Matsusuko roared for war, and if she could somehow wrest the clan championship from him, Doji Satsume had been forced to defend his championship in his later years, it could come to that. At the same time, his new wife, Kaide, was adjusting slowly to married life. Since the wedding, she still kept to her own quarters, maintaining frequent contact with her friends in the imperial capital. And what was Bayushi Yojiro up to? The play he had quoted from ended in a duel and a death. Two former friends had faced off against each other, and when the setting sun forced one of them to blink, the other seized the moment to strike. The encounter had been innocent enough when seen in isolation, but this morning Totori had received word of whom his opponent in the final duel was to be. Bayushi Aramoro. The Emerald Championship was a great prize. Great enough to tempt an honest scorpion? But what purpose did quoting an old play accomplish? No one needed to be reminded that most duels end in death, and the duels here were specifically designed to be non-fatal. What was Yojiro's point? Or was it merely coincidence? He shook his head in irritation and stood up. He had finished dressing and was sliding his swords into his obi when a guard announced that Ikoma Ujiaki wished to see him. Totori agreed, and he was shown in. Akoto Ue, Ujiaki said, bowing, his fearsome hair bobbing up and down, not unlike a lion's mane. I hope to resolve this matter quickly. The lion and unicorn delegations have had several... encounters so far today. Ujiaki didn't specify what the encounters were about, which meant Totori knew exactly what they had concerned. Lady Shinjo Altonsarnai's breaking of her betrothal with Akoma Anakazu was still sending shockwaves through the Lion Clan. That any samurai could behave with such disregard for clan and honor was incredible. It had created a major loss of face for the Akoma family, and Totori was not surprised that some lion samurai had found opportunities to express their displeasure with the unicorn clan. I'm sure they were merely drunk, Totori said. I will leave to your discretion how to deal with the samurai of your family. The unicorn will have to look after themselves. Indeed, not only that, my lord, but Kunsomatsu Mitsuko has led a raiding party against Hisumori Mura in Unicorn Lands. What? Who dared authorize the... He answered his own question. Matsusuko. Of course. Totori frowned. War seemed to inch closer 
to inevitability every day. We shall deal with this later. As you wish, Akoda Ue. Lastly, Mia Satoshi Dono has sent word that the duel will take place in two hours' time. Tatori nodded grimly. I am ready whenever the Emperor calls. As befits a samurai. Ujiaki hesitated. Akoda Ue, if I may. We could have easily recovered the Osari Plains had Doji Satsume not used his power as Emerald Champion to defend his clan's claim of ownership. By ensuring that the next Emerald Champion is an honorable samurai, we will no longer be bothered by such issues. Ikoma Ujiaki wasn't wrong, but he was nevertheless short-sighted. The Emerald Championship wasn't about a single clan. It was about all of them. Bayushi Aramura would only ever be a pawn of the Scorpion, enacting Shoju and Kachiko's will. The advantages of a lion emerald champion are obvious, Ujiaki continued. We should be so honored to have you win the tournament. Indeed, Totori replied. By your leave, Ujiaki said, and he bowed before leaving the tent. There are those lion who can crash after the fish and get them, but there are also those who see where those people need to go to achieve greater things. This is why you were chosen. He would not fail. The importance of the test of the Emerald Champion was such that the Emperor himself witnessed the final duel. The importance of the Emperor was such that anyone else who could possibly manage it also witnessed the final duel. From where Tatori stood, the crowd spread out before him, the finery of their brilliant kimono making the tournament field look like a meadow of summer flowers. The great lords and their favored vassals were seated on stands that had been built on the east side, flanking the emperor's box, the less fortunate standing wherever they could find room. The murmur of the crowd as those present exchanged gossip Rumors and the occasional morsel of real information was like the sea rolling onto shore. These things show us the bright flame of the world's glory. No. Now is the time for focus. At the Imperial Herald's signal, Totori began to walk slowly toward the center of the field. Bayushi Aramaro walked from the opposite direction. When the two men were ten paces apart, they stopped and bowed to each other, then faced east and prostrated themselves before the emperor. The imperial herald stepped forward to read a short pronouncement by the emperor, and then a shiginja blessed both the combatants and the tournament field. As the comforting weight of time-honored ritual surrounded him, Tutori offered a fervent prayer to his ancestors, asking for their blessing on him. Akodo Nakami, brother, may you guide me to the right path. These ceremonies done, both men arose and moved five paces away from each other. Now came the demonstration of skill, a last chance for duelists to flaunt their skill before the real challenge of the duel. Aramoro, being of lesser status, went first. At his signal, a scorpion boy approached, carrying two apples. As Aramoro dropped into his dueling stance, the boy quickly tossed the fruit into the air, one after another. 
Aramoro drew and swiftly made multiple cuts as the apples fell to earth. The boy gathered the pieces from the ground and carried them to the head judge who counted them. Sixteen, he announced, and a burst of admiring comments swept through the crowd. Totori kept his face impassive as unease spread through him like a drop of ink in a bowl of clean water. It wasn't the show of skill itself. While it was an impressive trick, it didn't show Aramoro to be more skillful than Totori had expected. There was something wrong with his opponent's stance. There was a distracted air about it, as if Aramoro was concentrating on more than just the matter at hand. These, These things, things show, show us, us he had no time for Yajiro's distractions. Taking a deep breath and releasing it slowly, Satori moved forward a few paces. Then he slowly and carefully began a basic Ie kata. One so old, it was said to have been invented by Kikita himself. He slowly bent his legs into an Ie stance, and then, with equal slowness, put his right hand on the hilt of his katana, while the left steadied the sheath. Moments trickled by in silence, and then Totori drew his blade, slowly sweeping it in a smooth, clean arc. There was no time, there was no crowd, there was only the man and the blade and the erasure of the difference between them. At the end of the arc, Tutori stopped. In one careful, controlled motion, he performed the flicking movement intended to clean the blade of any blood. Then, he slowly went through the process of returning the sword to its sheath. In the silence that followed, confusion marred the faces of most watchers. Only a few samurai seemed approving of his form. He discreetly glanced over to the crane delegation, where Doji Hataru was doing a credible job of looking impassive. Kikita Toshimoko sat next to her, grinning broadly. Both had clearly recognized the insult he had just issued to Aramoro. You, you won't, won't see my draw, draw when we duel, so I will show it to you now, slowly. It was tempting to look to see if Aramoro had caught it, but that would ruin the effect. At a signal from the head judge, two assistants came forward to attach long paper targets to the forearms of both men. When his targets were secured, Totori turned back toward his opponent and blinked in surprise. During the process of receiving his targets, Aramoro had contrived to move his position, so that he now stood farther to the east. There was nothing forbidding him from doing so, but in facing the westering sun, he had chosen to put himself at a slight disadvantage. This time, there was no holding off the unease that surged through Totori. Aramoro was clearly up to something, and there was nothing Totori could do about it. The duel was now, and he could not stop it because of vague feelings of uneasiness. Totori centered himself, focusing on the simple process of breathing. He breathed in from his belly. If Aramoro was seeking to cheat, then Aramoro was a weak opponent. He held his breath. He would not fear such a person, but he did want to know what he was facing. He breathed out through his nose, finding strength in his core. As he stepped forward and bowed once more to Aramoro, Totori studied him. Something linked Aramoro's stance and his decision to face to the west. When he deciphered what it was, he could figure out how to defeat the trick. 
if he still had time. Aramoro settled into his stance. Totori did likewise, seeking deep within for the calm that Ie required, trying to wall off his upper mind's feverish attempts to unravel the mystery. These, These things, things show, show us. us. Aramoro moved his head slightly. His face was obscured by his mask, but his eyes squinted against the setting sun. His stance. The sun. The, the bright, bright flame, flame of, of the world's, world's glory. glory. Shutting his eyes, he drew, relying on his speed and the memory of exactly where Aramoro was. His blade hissed through the air, and then he heard the startled reaction of the crowd. He opened his eyes. Aramoro stood with his sword half-drawn, and both of his paper targets cut clean away. Totori had won. After his acceptance of the Emperor's official appointment and the emerald armor came the endless round of well-wishers, most of whom subtly, or not so subtly, wanted Totori to appoint some relative or another as an emerald magistrate. Fending them all off was as exhausting as battle. The next to approach him was his wife. What was she going to ask him for? "'You have brought great glory to your ancestors,' she said, bowing to him. "'I will strive to maintain that glory,' Totori replied. "'And your kata before the duel was a thing of great beauty,' Kaide said. Her eyes twinkled as she said it, and Totori realized that she, too— had seen the insult behind it. He smiled back at her. I am pleased you appreciated it. Kaide gave a small smile in return, then moved off. As she left, the crowd swirling around the tournament field shifted, and for a moment Totori caught a glimpse of Bayushi Yojiro speaking with a scorpion courtier. Then the crowd shifted again, hiding him from view. What was Yojiro playing at? Why had he warned Totori against Aramoro's trick? Was he acting as an honorable magistrate, seeking to defend the integrity of the office of the Emerald Magistrates? Or was this some very deep Scorpion plan to get Yojiro into Totori's trust? Few things were certain when dealing with the Clan of Secrets. At last, the Ruby Champion, his second-in-command, approached and gave him a deep bow. It shall be an honor to serve you, Champion Okoda Tutori-sama, Agasha Sumiko said ceremonially. We have much to discuss when you have time. No doubt, Tutori replied, with a slight bow of his own. I look forward to working together. The dragon bowed once more, the ruby of her armor glimmering in the sun. Was she someone he could finally trust? Or had she been somehow complicit in the death of his predecessor? What new details about the death of Lord Doji Satsume would be revealed to him now that he would be overseeing the investigation? For a moment, the emerald armor weighed down on him like the bulk of a mountain. The weight of the Lion Clan had been one thing, but now he served all the Empire. Totori reflexively straightened. He was a lion samurai of Okoto's own line. He would not fail.
Wild Cats and Dragon Teeth by Lisa Farrell Read by Jeannie Calvar The sharpest bite comes from hidden teeth. Shinsei was as the young wildcat that had once stood in her path and hissed at her horse. It had been on a narrow mountain path the last time she rode from Castle Agasha to Odasanuchi. Although the cat snarled, its golden fur bristling, her horse had demonstrated the quality of its training by walking on. The cat bolted, disappearing down the mountain rather than be trampled. So it would likely be now. Agasha Sumiko's opponent watched her every move, a fierce intensity to his gaze that would have had her punish him for his defiance, were he any other student. She stood before him without her armor, and wielding only a pair of wooden boken, but she moved, as she would have on a battlefield, her stance relaxed, the practice weapons extensions of her limbs. She demonstrated again the exercises from Neaton her movements elegant and fluid. She clacked the swords together in a cross above her head, swept them down and thrust with the longer boken, the shorter sword arcing under to disable her invisible foe. Then another clack, another move, another clack, and on went the rhythm of the dance. Hante Soteri had not yet found his rhythm. He mimicked the thrust sweep, the dull thud of wood on wood. Yet there was no intent in the prince's movements, despite the grim determination in his eyes. He was an imperfect reflection. All the forms were there, but there was no flow, no unifying grace. While Sumiko handled the boken with the respect she would her own weapons, the prince gripped them tight as though to punish them. Dissatisfied with his performance, she began to demonstrate again. Enough! the prince shouted, and she ceased at once, bowing low to her student. "'You did well, your highness,' she told him. "'To master the two-sword style takes many years. I will gladly guide you in your pursuit of the art.' "'I was only curious,' he said defensively. "'Satsume-sensei taught me everything he knew, and I need no more than that to win my own battles.' "'As you wish, your highness,' she replied." Attendant stepped forward to offer the prince water, for his face was red. They did not offer such courtesy to Sumiko, the ruby champion, but she had been teaching the way of the sword since before the young prince was born, and it took more than a few drills to wind her. "'We must duel with Katana, like real warriors!' the prince exclaimed suddenly. "'I have invited those present to witness my training. Let's give them something worth watching!' He lacks patience. He did not excel on his first try, so he means to compensate and succeed somewhere else instead. If that is your desire, your highness, she said, relinquishing her boken to the prince's attendants. The gaze of the courtiers upon her back was as hot as the sun bearing down on them. Poor souls, 
none had a sufficient reason to excuse them from attending the spectacle. Kitsuki Yamura was there, too, wilting in the heat. He did not deserve this. She would cut the exercises short, for his sake. He'd helped her too many times, and she owed him at least this much. She took up her stance. The prince took his place and faced her, ready for the mock duel. Had this been a real encounter, the fight would have been over before it began. Sumiko stood like the mountains of her home, taller than the prince, with longer reach, and weathered by years of experience. The prince facing her in his silks was like the little golden cat, but he was still the heir apparent. His power and position demanded unquestioning respect. They drew their swords, her agasha blade blindingly bright in the sunlight. As she readied the specially forged katana, its sharp edge was shadowed for a moment, revealing the choji pattern, the dragon teeth that gave the katana its name. She would give him but one blade for now. Sumiko extended her arm slowly, giving the prince time to react. He jabbed prematurely, and she barely had to move to avoid the blow. The Kakita style was precise, lightning fast. This young Hante was no Kakita duelist. Doji Satsume had trained him, but had he taught him anything? The old sensei's loyalty to the emperor and his line had been a great virtue, but it may have blinded him as well. Had honor and protocol kept the man from criticizing the young prince? Sumiko stepped back, allowed him a breath to recover, to attack again. Sotori had undergone his genpuku, had had his head shaved into the topknot style, and had been formally invested as the crown prince. But at his heart, he was still a boy. Only a child would feel such a need to prove himself before the court this way. Sumiko gave him chance after chance to prove himself with her exaggerated movements, which were also meant to remind the audience that this was still a lesson. The prince furrowed his brow, realizing with frustration each missed opportunity. His attacks grew wilder, the thrusts and cuts harder, metal clanging painfully in an affront to their razor-edged blades. The prince seemed intent on provoking her into fighting him as an equal, yet she held back. She had to, as his old sensei must have done. Sumiko attacked again, and the prince knocked her sword aside in a hurried swipe. If they continued like this, he would damage his blade. The Agasha forging techniques would lend her some protection, but not against the most flagrant abuse. Still, she did not end the duel, waiting instead for the prince to find an opening and gain the victory he so coveted. He grunted in frustration, crying out as he tried again and again. He refused to vary his moves, expecting to win by determination and sheer force, despite his size disadvantage. At last, Sumiko swept her katana in a smooth arc, bringing the blade to rest gently at the prince's shoulder. Refusing to acknowledge that she could have severed his head, the prince darted forward and thrust his katana at her belly. She twisted slightly, felt the bite of cold steel in warm flesh. As blood bloomed on white fabric, a gasp escaped the crowd. 
For a moment there was silence in the garden. Sumiko studied the young Hante. His gaze was on her wounded side, his eyes widening with excitement, his lip curling into a satisfied smile. He cared for winning more than he cared for honor. Sumiko bowed to the prince, letting the courtiers know she had not received a serious wound after all. She had let him cut her a little to satisfy his pride. She did not know what would become of her if she hadn't. "'Is your sword enchanted?' the prince crowed. "'What good is it if it cannot win you duels? Does it pine for its companion?' "'They were made as a pair,' Sumiko conceded calmly, sheathing her sword. Courtiers rushed forward to congratulate their prince on his victory as he motioned for his chair. Sumiko sought out her old friend, nodding politely to the courtiers that passed her. The crane in their fine embroidered kimono— the scorpion hiding behind their masks, the lion with stony faces. It would have been impossible for them to miss the demonstration of the prince's temperament. Then there he was, the dragon-clan ambassador to the imperial court, standing tall with green silk hanging in heavy waves from his bony shoulders. The prince has teeth of his own, champion, Yuruma said as she approached. He will not lose battles through lack of effort. Yurum Osama, she replied, pitching her voice low so the words would not carry. He frowned slightly, but only changed the subject. I should like to see your blades at work together, he said, the dragon's teeth and claws. It was a subject close to her heart, but it also gave her the pretense she needed to meet with him and discuss matters she could not mention here. "'You are welcome to visit and view them properly,' Sumiko said. "'I hope you will come to see me this evening, Yuruma-san. "'You have an eye for detail, and you sometimes see things that I do not.' "'He was no investigator, but he was still Kitsuki, and she trusted him. "'If she could voice her fears to anyone, it would be him.' "'He regarded her for a moment, seeming to grasp her meaning. "'I thank you for the invitation.' Yuruma said, I will gladly view your daisho this evening. Now I have work to do inside, out of this sun, and you had best see to that wound. Sumiko allowed herself a smile. It is nothing, she insisted. I look forward to your visit, and promise the sake would be cool. Good day to you, Yuruma-san. Sumiko looked back to the prince, only to find him watching her from his cushioned seat. He waved away the other courtiers, and she approached him with her skin prickling, a strange, heavy feeling in her gut. "'What did you talk of with the dragon ambassador?' the prince demanded as she bowed to the ground before him. "'We spoke of your prowess, your highness,' she said. "'I will continue your training personally, if you wish it. Perhaps you will desire to continue our lessons in the Neaton style another day.' "'Ha!' Satsume-sensei said that only a fool needs two hands where one will do. I will master that style one day, but I think I will practice proper swordsmanship first. Akoda Tutori can take over my training. Of course, she said. You wish to duel as the Emerald Champion dueled. Did I not best the Ruby Magistrate herself today? Why not the Emerald Champion tomorrow? His ridiculous boast made her forget herself, and she looked up into his eyes. They were still bright with excitement. She dropped her gaze. Young though he was, 
He had power over everyone but his father. Perhaps she had been wrong for allowing him to hurt her, reminding him of that power. A shadow fell over her, the unrelenting sun replaced by a sudden gloom. She thought for a moment that he had stood, about to make some terrible proclamation, but it was only clouds gathering. "'Tell me,' the prince demanded, "'what do you think of the Emerald Champion?' "'His draw was very fine,' she said, "'superbly executed.' "'Yes, I know that. "'But do you think he will be as great an emerald champion as Satsume-sensei?' Sumiko did not know how to answer without answering, as Yuruma would have done. She did not yet know Okoto Tutori, so could not yet trust him. She had not been a friend of Doji Satsume's, but she had never questioned his loyalty, nor he hers. She had respected him, and they always worked well together.' Everything would be different under the new champion, but she could not voice her uneasiness. "'Speak up!' the prince said. Thunder grumbled through the gardens, and the prince stood suddenly, without waiting for her answer. "'Curse the rain! What's the point of Shiginja if they can't even keep the skies clear?' She kept her mouth closed. "'Did the prince really expect Shiginja to interfere with the seasons and the natural order?' just so he could train in the sunshine? The departure of Hante Soteri became a parade as his bodyguards, courtiers, servants, and attendants fell into step behind him. Colorful silks swept around the figures in the rising breeze, many marked with the imperial chrysanthemum, trailing like tail feathers, but the sun did not return. Perhaps Lady Sun herself had been ashamed to witness the prince's behavior. Fireflies by Robert Denton III Read by Jeannie Calvar You've made it said Kaide, her eyes brightening as Sapun Ishikawa bowed into the cramped alcove. You are looking well, Lady Okoto. Kaide winced. Please, Ishikawa, not so formal. She gestured to the empty cushion on the opposite side of the table. Ishikawa took his seat, casting frequent glances at the rest of the sparse tea house. Patrons whispered beneath the filtered shade of amber lanterns amid plucks of the biwa, but none looked their way. "'I hope I have not inconvenienced you too much,' she said, pouring straw-colored tea into his cup. He shook his head. "'Not at all. I was hoping we would have a chance to speak.' He searched the room once more before looking back to her. "'You are here unescorted.' 
I can take care of myself, Ishikawa. These meetings will be easier once you and your husband have officially moved to the Palace of the Emerald Champion. She didn't reply, but instead pushed his teacup forward. Here. You will have to drink the whole kettle, I'm afraid. I do not care for the blend myself. No? He held the cup close to his nose, then sipped. It is a strong soldier's tea, he remarked. Bitter. Suited to strengthening one's resolve. It is mostly barley, she chuckled. It is the only blend they seem to serve in this province. I complained about it to my husband, actually. It is enough to make one miss Golden Needle. She looked away, resting her pointed chin on her palm. It is enough to make one miss many things, she added softly. He set his cup down. We should close the shoji. He reached toward the lattice and rice paper screen. Leave it open, she said without looking. Ishikama grimaced but withdrew his hand. You know how this would look if someone saw us. How would it look if we were hiding behind a screen? Can two old friends not visit in a public place? She turned toward him. We can speak freely here. As you say. But your husband may not approve of your coming here unescorted. You know him better than I, she quietly replied. Ishikawa leaned back and folded his hands on the table. He said nothing, just watching her. Kaide waited, the pressure in her chest slowly building, until he finally offered her a mute nod. Words spilled from her mouth. I do not know how to be a good wife to him, she confessed. The shame torched her cheeks. He avoids me. He barely speaks to me. His face never changes. I'm not even sure how he feels about me. I... She closed her eyes. She should not be telling these things to the captain of the Imperial Guard, a man who would work closely with her husband, the newly minted Emerald Champion. I am not even sure who he really is. How am I to ease the tensions between our clans as his wife if I cannot even know what lies in his heart? Give it time, Ishikawa finally said. It may comfort you to know that few in the Empire know the mind of Okoto Tuturi. Chief among his greatest strengths is that he cannot be predicted or easily read. But you are not merely anyone, Marioku no Kaide. You are the daughter of the Void Master himself and his greatest student. You survived three months in the mountains of the Dragon Clan. This should be no contest. She bit her lip. Do you remember when we were children? Ishikawa continued. In the summer, my father would visit yours, and I would stay with your family. At night, you would leave all the windows open so that the fireflies would come into the house. You said you wanted there to be stars inside as well as out. He smiled. One so willful would not surrender hope so easily. The heat did not leave her face, but Kaede nodded. Perhaps, she whispered. Ishikawa reached into his collar and withdrew a rectangle of folded red paper. It was tied with a strip of ribbon and painted with the mon of the Asawa. He placed it on the table. A letter from your brother. Her eyes widened. She swept it up, inhaling the scent of pine and sandalwood steeped into the paper. 
The golden pagodas of Cayuta Nisawa flashed ephemerally in her mind. You have done me a great kindness, she said. It is nothing, he replied. It does me well to see you smile. Kaide set the letter aside and refilled his cup. So, she said, you were in Phoenix Lands recently. She hesitated. Did you speak with father then? He nodded. Did he say anything about the unusual situation? He stopped, teacup hovering just before his lips. Slowly he lowered it. She kept her face like a still pond, pushing her churning stomach down from her surface thoughts. He did. Ishikawa kept his voice low. She had to lean in to catch his words. It is getting worse. Two new stars have appeared in the northern sky. The Asako cannot discern why. Meanwhile, the water kami ignore all but the greatest of offerings. The elemental masters debate over what should be done. He paused. Your father said the tsunami that savaged the Crane Coast could be related. Kaide clenched her jaw. Did he say how? I am afraid any explanation would be beyond my ability to understand. She nodded, then drew a deep breath to steady herself. It is spreading. I have felt it here as well. The color drained from Ishikawa's face. The summer rains have been few and far between, she continued. The kami of the clouds will not speak to me. And there are other signs, more subtle than can be explained. Have you said anything? To your husband? To anyone? Her gaze rested on her wrists, where the mon of the Okoto stared back. I cannot, she admitted. If the lions sense that the phoenix cannot defend themselves... She left the rest unsaid. Kaide. Ishikawa's expression was grave. If the imbalance is spreading, he searched for words, anguish briefly flickering across his features. You realize what I must do, he finally said. He lowered his head. Forgive me, I have no choice. The din of the tea house prevailed between them. Kaide slowly moves her hand forward along the table, letting it rest just beside Ishikawa's. He looked up. Please, she whispered. Father entrusted you with this. I ask that you trust him in turn. The masters will bring it before the Sepun in due time. But we must comprehend it first, or the other clans will act in haste. It could make things worse. She met his gaze. Please, Ishikawa, for me... Ishikawa looked into her midnight eyes for a long time. At last he pulled back, putting the cup to his lips and emptying it in a slow inhale. Then he closed his eyes and nodded. Thank you, Kaide said. I will not forget. I will have another cup of that tea, Ishikawa replied. Ishikawa mounted his horse, checking that his things were in place. As the servant took the horse by the reins, he took one last look back. Through the window of the tea house, he saw that Kaide was still there. She was speaking to someone, smiling, laughing. 
but not in her eyes. He turned away, darkening. He whispered, You are not worthy of her, Tatori-sama. After reading it for the second time, Kaire set down her brother's letter and looked into the paper lantern in the corner. Soldiers glowed in vivid color on its surface, locked as they were in perpetual battle against the giant moths attracted by the light. Tadaka, she whispered, why must you always take the shortest path to your goals? My lady? Kaide looked up. Her servant's curious expression glowed in the lantern light, made even more vibrant by her white makeup. My brother, Kaide explained, it seems he has challenged his sensei to a duel. The maidservant's face melted into an expression of horror. With his own sensei? But the bond between a sensei and student is sacred. Are such things common in the phoenix? Maki-san, Kaide said flatly. Kindly fetch me some paper and implements. I will return my brother's letter tonight. The woman lowered her head, touching it to the floor. Of course, she murmured, slipping out of the room. From beyond the silk screen separating Kaide from the balcony came a distant, mournful wail. She turned toward the screen and listened for a reply, but none came. A lone wolf, she decided. They were common in her mountainous homelands but not here in the open plains of the lion, where the farms were well guarded and the roads well traveled even at night. It would be far from home then, calling out in vain search of something familiar. Kaide rose and stole the lantern from the drunken moths, leaving the letter open on the table, entrusting its contents to the tangled glyphs of the phoenix cipher. She took impatient steps away from her room, the hall outside was a perfect square, her lantern's light just grazed the stair's banister. Distantly, the night servants gossiped in low tones. They awaited Tatori's return, whenever that would be. Kaede looked over the banister and saw their shadows in the flickering lights. The sliding door across the way was painted with a scene depicting a pride of lions disrupting a flock of feeding cranes. Beyond that door was her husband's study. Kaede's pulse quickened as she considered the shoji's tapestry and wondered what might lie beyond. Never mind, Maki-san, she called out. A slight smile parted her lips. I will get them myself. She approached the door with her weight on her toes. The eyes of mural animals followed her as she went. Am I, Am I not, not the head of my husband's, husband's household? household? Can I not go wherever I please? Painted lions watched her palm as it pressed against the door's lattice, sliding the screen aside. Totori's unlit study was plain and utilitarian. Kaede's heart skipped at a humanoid silhouette in the corner, but then the lantern light revealed the polished lamellar plates of empty armor, and she relaxed, releasing a self-admonishing breath. It is it's only, only the, the servants, servants who are not allowed in here. Her rationale had no effect on her racing, mischievous heart. Like a child sneaking treats, she entered the room, slowly closing the door behind her. She set the lantern down and approached her husband's knee-high desk, 
each step conjuring an accusing squeak from the nightingale floor. Her gaze floated from one object to the next. An empty daisho stand by the door. A sheathed kodachi with the matsuman on its pommel. A crisply folded origami crane resting on a squat pedestal. And a three-tiered tana shelf displaying ancient scrolls. The shelf in particular drew her interest. Many of the scrolls were made from bound slats of bamboo, predating the invention of paper. Atop the shelf, lantern-light glinted off a carved stone lion. It was a replica of the guardian lion of the celestial cloud monastery, exactly as it appeared in her memory. Her father had laughed when she'd climbed onto its back as a child. Her outstretched fingers traced the grooves in the polished granite. The familiar style was unmistakable. This was carved by Asako hands. What was this replica doing in the study of the lion champion? Kaede looked away. Paper, she reminded herself. Paper, ink, and a brush. Nothing else. The desk was frustratingly clean. Nothing like the desk she'd rummaged through as an adolescent. The lone fold-out drawer did contain some ink sticks and a brush, but no inkstone. Halfway there, she set them on the desk. Now where does he keep his... Her foot struck something mid-step. Gasping in pain, she hit the floor as the squat coffer scattered its contents. Kaede grimaced at the wooden box, once hidden in the shadows but now illuminated by the lantern. Stupid, she chided herself and pushed up from the floor. Or maybe not. Among the contents spilled, she spied a smooth inkstone, a water vial, and a collapsed stack of papers. Triumphant, she scooted to the box and collected her discovery. As she did, the lantern revealed one final object, a thin bound notebook cast to the floor. Kaede froze. She'd seen books like this. It was almost certainly a journal, entrusted with the intimate thoughts of its owner. Totori's journal. That's not fair. Her letter forgotten. She sat at his desk and laid the book in front of her. Her stomach churned with a sense of invasion. Spilt water will not return to the tray. I have come this far. I may as well have a look. Her hand hovered over the cover. It will probably be ciphered anyway. Her fingers curled beneath the cover. And if it's not, shouldn't a wife know the mind of her husband? With a nod, she flung it aside. She frowned. The first page was blank, but for the number one, written on the corner. She turned the page. The next two were also blank. Puzzled, she flipped the book to a random place. There. Something written in high Rokugani. As an ocean to a small stream, the leader to his people, this is the Tao to the world. From the Tao of Sensei. On the next page, she found two more quotes. She furrowed her brow and flipped through. Some pages contained entire sutras. Many were empty. Is he copying portions of the Tao? Sighing, Kaede looked up from her fruitless search. The door was open. Watching from the entrance stood Okoto Tutori. The journal clattered to the floor from her limp fingers. 
Totori was still dressed in his sandy travel clothes, his sword still tucked into his belt. In the shadows cast by the lantern, she could not read his face. Her mouth went instantly dry as a wave of hot guilt rushed over her. She felt like a fox caught with a rice ball in its mouth. She lowered her head. It is inexcusable, she finally croaked and awaited his angry outburst. Instead, he slipped the swords from his obi and set them on their stand by the door. Then he crossed the study to open the sliding door, exposing the balcony. The night air tussled her dark hair. Her husband stood enshrined within a perfect moon. Beyond, the wild grasses of Lionlands were dotted by countless fireflies. For a long time, they remained that way. Tutori finally spoke. Have you ever heard the story of Shinsei Anakoto? When she did not reply, he continued. After the little teacher conversed with Hante no Kami, and Lord Shiba wrote what would become the Tao, Akoto one-eye made to leave. Hante called out to him, Brother, you show disrespect to this monk and his wisdom. Akoto simply replied, His way is not my way. Shiba spoke then. It is not his way, but the way of the world. Again, Akoto replied, It is not my way. Finally, Shinsei spoke, saying, The Tao cannot be one thing, for then it could not be another. When he did, Akoto drew his sword and raised it high. This is my way, he said, and left. Kaide's reply came in a whisper. I have never heard it told that way. Tsuturi turned. The strong features of his moonlit face were devoid of anger. Originally, Akoto forbade any copy of the Tao to enter Lion Lands. When the emperor heard this, he decreed the opposite. A copy of the Tao should rest in a place of honor within every Lion Dojo. And it is so, even to this day. Totori returned his gaze to the starry fields. And to this day, not a single copy has ever been opened. No one would dare. Not even the Lion Clan champion. Kaede's eyes widened. She felt as if she held his very heart in her hands. In that moment, the clouds in her mind parted, and for a brief flash, she saw the moon. She sat at Tori's desk. Ritualistically, she prepared ink, then opened his journal to the first page. She dipped the brush and wrote with careful practice strokes. When she reached the third page, he sensed his eyes upon her. He wore open confusion, gaze locked in shock. You are missing many sections, she remarked. Fortunately, I have it memorized. I could probably complete it tonight. She met his eyes. If it pleases you. Totori looked away. He was gone within moments. Out to the door and into the hall. Kaede lowered the brush in tandem with her heart. She was a brittle leaf in his wake, cast helplessly without direction. Her eyes dimmed. Failure was a lone brushstroke on the cold, empty page of her husband's journal. I will never reach him, she concluded, and began to put the implements away. She stopped. Totori was at the door again. Now he carried an iron kettle and a small wooden tray. As he set these down, Kaide spotted several small cups and a green brick of compressed leaves. It was bound in twine, 
a slip of paper identifying the tea. It bore the mon of the Asawa. She gasped. Golden Needle, she whispered. I thought it might be more to your liking. Totori broke the brick and steeped the leaves. His movements were deliberate. Practiced. He placed a cup before her with avoidant eyes, turning it thrice. He poured. Kaida inhaled the scent of pine, citrus, and sun-roasted leaves. Home. They looked up in tandem. In the moonlight, his cheeks were slightly red. He sat in the lotus pose on the balcony, looking out at the night. She sat beside him. Fireflies hovered around them. In their brief sparks, the swaying of the midnight grass did not seem so different to Kaede than that in the lands of her birth. "'You will let in the fireflies,' she warned. Totori placed his hand, palm up, on the wooden floor. "'You do not mind, I hope?' "'Not at all,' she replied, and rested her hand in his." The Spectres of War by Lisa Farrell Read by Jeannie Calvar Not every question has a perfect answer, but every answer has a perfect question. Shinsei Tori woke to a shrill wail, like the keening of some mournful spirit. He sat up, chilled despite the summer warmth of the room, but the sound stopped abruptly as he moved. He was alone with the shadows, their shapes weak in the moon glow through the screen. His sword rested on the stand by the door, but he did not reach for it. No sound save for the distant buzz of insects outside, and no movement. The wail was already a memory, a fragment from a dream, perhaps. He put a hand to the mat beside him and found the space cold. Where is Kaide? He rose silently and pulled on his robe, moving toward the screen, instinct telling him where she would be. He slid it aside, revealing an expanse of silver and gray. A lone figure sat on the veranda, her black hair hanging loose down her back. Her white kimono shone in the moonlight, as though she were a ghost. Kaide, he began. Are you well? She did not turn, so he moved to sit beside her, crossing his legs under him. It was her fourth broken night. He wished he had awoken, as he had the previous times, and held her. She does not have to face her troubles alone. She remained motionless with her head bowed, her face partially hidden by her hair. Even the air was still, offering little relief from the heat. She seemed to be listening, not to him, 
or the continuous chirp of the crickets, but to something beyond. Kaide, he put a hand very gently on her shoulder, startling her. Tutori, forgive me. She turned to offer him a bow, and her face was calm, if pale, as she sat back on her heels. Her eyes shone, but there were no tears, no sign that the unnatural sound had come from her. "'Were you dreaming again?' he asked quietly, aware that conversation at such an hour might draw notice. "'In a manner of speaking.' "'You have not yet gone to the realm of void.' No, husband, yet in my sleep I travel not to Yumido, but nevertheless my soul wanders. I have seen them, spirits walking through the fields, searching for something. I must go to them. Let us talk inside, Tatori said, before she could say more. She obeyed, returning with him into the palace of the Emerald Champion. He closed the screen against the night and lit a lamp, while Kaide settled herself on the tatami mats. He would have fetched tea for her, were he not afraid to leave her alone. "'I must go at dawn,' she said, as he knelt before her. "'I must go to Toshirambo.' That city haunted his dreams as well, though for different reasons. His brother's memory was itself like a ghost, and Agasha Sumiko raised the subject of the city's fate at every meeting. "'Perhaps they are but dreams,' he tried to reassure her. Your sleep was not troubled until you received the letter from your father. Your thoughts dwell on spirits, that is all. Four nights, she whispered, and this time I saw a face. Whose face? I cannot be sure. She bit her lip, her eyes distant. Totori waited, but did not press her. Our Shiginja must go at once, she said, with or without me. Have you approved my honored father's petition? Daidoji Uji holds the city now, he explained. The Iron Crane would take offense at assertions his Shiginja have failed to appease the fallen. That's why I must refuse the Phoenix petition. You have decided this? He nodded, although there was still doubt in his mind. She did not question his decision, but she gazed thoughtfully at the floor for a long time. Then I will go alone, she said at last. He cannot take offense at a single visitor. He will have to welcome the wife of the Emerald Champion. No, Tatori said. I forbid you to go. The cicada's song filled the silence. You are too precious to risk. Her face remained still. As you wish, husband. She gave him a formal bow and moved to leave. But he could not bear to let her depart with his harsh words hanging between them. And so he was resolved. I will go, he said. I will go to Toshirambo and see for myself that the spirits are at peace. He had considered such before, but now he was left with no other option. It was the only way to satisfy the phoenix without offending the crane. Thank you, she said, her voice trembling. His chest ached to see her so desperately seeking control. You're exhausted, he said. Try to sleep. She did not leave him that night, and they slept with the lamp burning. Tutori rolled the seal gently, leaving the image of the imperial chrysanthemum in emerald green on the scroll. 
The weight of the seal in his hand was still unfamiliar, cumbersome, as was the power it symbolized. Power granted to him by the emperor, the son of heaven himself, and all it took was the press of his mark to paper to change the fate of a samurai, a family, a clan. It was not a mark to make lightly. He watched the emerald paste dry. It shone in the sunlight pouring in the screen beside him, glistening slightly, like the precious stone ground to make the pigment. He pushed the scroll aside with a sigh. He had many more to read and consider. "'The ruby champion has arrived!' came the servant's voice. The rest would have to wait until his return. Totori cleaned the seal carefully and replaced it in its box before nodding to indicate his readiness to greet Agasha Sumiko. The dragon warrior shuffled across the threshold and bowed low. As she sat back, she revealed a face impassive as ever, yet her cheeks were flushed and her hair unusually disordered. Unless she had been training in the kimono she wore, she had taken to heart the message that the matter was urgent. Champion, Tatori, the servant led me to believe my presence was required at once. Her words were perfectly polite, but the emphasis on the word champion sounded forced. Sumiko-san, thank you for coming so promptly. I wish to talk to you before I left, and I leave soon. Until I return, you may act with my full authority. Sumiko's face remained composed, her eyes on the map before her but her reply betrayed her surprise. "'Of course,' she said. "'But where do you go?' "'I go chasing ghosts,' he said, and this time she forgot herself for a moment, and her eyes met his. "'Ghosts?' "'My wife has been troubled by dreams of Toshi Rambo,' he told her. "'Since she heard the rumors of restless spirits beyond its walls, her own thoughts have become restless. She has asked to go herself and investigate the possible disturbance.' but I cannot allow her to travel. At present, her health is delicate. He paused as the wind rustled the scrolls on the table beside him. From Sumiko's approving nod, she had probably guessed his reasoning. Hataru would not have sought war had the Crane clan champion stayed in the city, but he did not know enough of the Daidoji daimyo to be sure of his actions. Already the threat of war loomed between Lion and Crane, and between Lion and Unicorn, Totori would not allow the peaceable phoenix to be dragged into the conflict as well. While I am there, I will speak to General Daidoji and determine his intentions. I hope to find a way to secure the fate of the city without the need for war. I hope your wife feels strong again soon, champion, Sumiko said. I am glad she has convinced you to act, though I could not. Even now, Sumiko believes I do not listen to her. There was nothing challenging in her demeanor, only in her words. Yet the play of her hair in the wind made her stillness seem forced. All Totori's life, his thoughtfulness had been mistaken for inaction, or worse, indifference. He had hoped Sumiko might understand. But not all dragon samurai had the patience of monks. Perhaps if she had, she would have never made her way to her current position in the capital, where few dragons dwelled. You could not convince me to claim the city for the emperor against the emperor's wishes, Tatori reminded her. That does not mean I wish to see war between the clans. Tatori glanced at the lacquered box that contained the seal of his office. It would take a demonstration of his trust to earn hers. He would not be away for long. 
She could not undo all his work in so short a span, even if she wanted to. Toshi Rambo is on the minds of many, Sumiko said, reclaiming his attention. There are rumors now of new mines near the city. Gem veins, recently discovered. Even the possibility of jade will tempt the crab. Why did she not tell me this before? I cannot listen if she does not speak. The conflict between crane and lion, Tatori said, his tone carefully neutral, has already caused enough strife. Then there was the unicorn petition that would have brought the city under imperial control and scorpion influence, and now the crab will also want a say in the city's fate. Sumiko said nothing. Perhaps she did not trust him enough to speak plainly. Perhaps he should have invited her to share sake in an evening, as Kitsuki Yuruma did. The trust of a long friendship could not be forced, but Tatori needed her support in his new position. Sumiko-san, in your conferences with the Dragon Clan ambassador, has he given you any reason to suppose your own clan takes some interest in the city as well? My lord, we meet as friends. We discuss trivial matters over sake. We talk of home. We talk of the weather. He has made no mention of Toshirambo. She paused, a question left unasked. He did not tell her the rumors he had heard. They were only rumors. She thinks I question her loyalty, but she must earn my trust as well. His own loyalty to the Empire was still questioned by some, and he had yet to prove it. Since that unicorn petition, he began, the question of Toshi Rambo's governing has been a topic of discussion throughout the Empire. It is a strategic military location for the whole of the North. The fate of the city weighs heavily on my mind. And now that even my own wife, Totori caught himself, he would not tell Sumiko all his fears. Until I return, you may act with my full authority, he repeated. My leaving is no secret, but I would rather it not become court gossip either. Keep things running smoothly, as though I were still here. And better that Matsusuku does not hear of it until I've returned. Thank you, champion. It shall be done. She paused. May I offer some advice? He nodded. Please do. Be sure to ride in the armor of your office, or they will kill you before you reach the gates. The Iron Crane will not hesitate to act if you approach in lion colors. Does she think me so foolish as to ride in brown? I do not wish to appear as though I ride into battle, he said. I am only taking a small company. You still will not seize control for the Empire? The Emperor does not wish it, he said, in a tone he hoped was final. But the Empire might require it. There can be no distinction, Dottori said, but he did not rebuke her. He did not wish for all their conversations to end in argument. He took the hefty box in his hands and offered his seal to her for safekeeping, though he felt the gesture spoiled by the turn the meeting had taken. Sumiko received it graciously. No doubt the weight felt more familiar in her hands than his, since it had been in her care after the death of his predecessor. "'Until you return,' she said. Totori nodded, ready to dismiss her but she went on. Champion, I hope you find what you seek, she said, but I fear you are searching for the perfect answer. Sometimes there is none, and you must still make a decision. He rode through the summer haze, 
sweating under the lacquered steel and leather armor of the emerald champion. His horse's hooves disturbed the dust of the road, and flies buzzed in lazy circles around its stoic head. Soon the shape of Toshirambo would appear on the horizon, a walled city with the jagged shrine to Bishamon rising above the walls to claw the sky. Would the gates be opened or closed at his approach? In another life he might have come as a lion warrior looking for vengeance. Rasu had died outside those gates, a casualty of war, and his death had not brought his clan a victory. Suko would have Tatori retake the city for his brother's sake, but he saw no honor in bringing war, needless war, to Rokugan. As the road rounded a bend, the sight of the city's walls greeted his traveling party, five hand-picked assistants to the Emerald Magistrates. Toshirambo's gates remained closed, the only sign of life the birds wheeling over it like flakes of dark ash drifting on the wind. There would be watchers on those walls, waiting to see what the Emerald Champion would do. Totori did not approach the gates. Instead, he signaled for his company to wait, and he rode on his horse from the road onto what had been a battlefield. The field had become a flowering meadow, with specks of yellow shifting in the breeze, like tiny funeral lanterns floating on the green sea of the grasses. He reined his horse and slid to the ground, the only sound the shrill of the cicadas. The crane had been most efficient at their attempts to purify the battlefield, erasing any traces of death. They would not have neglected the rites for the fallen. His own brother had received all due ceremonies, and he was sure Suko had performed her duties to the departed as well. There should be no spirits tethered to this place. He faced west and recited a quiet prayer for the dead, cutting the air with his fingers in the sword mudra as they taught him at the monastery to warn any unwelcome spirits to depart. The sun was warm on his face, and it would not be long until he returned and could assure Kaide that the dreams that disturbed her in the night were nothing more than fears. He turned back to the city, where the gates now hung open. A company of Daidoji iron warriors rode out, with their banners held high, their greys and blues muted by the brighter blue of the sky above. The last time Tatori had seen the Daidoji crest was on the day he lost his brother, the day Hotaru slew Arasu. Now General Daidoji Uji came to meet him personally, dressed for war. Five riders trotted behind their commander to match the number Tatori had brought. Tatori mounted his horse and rejoined his companions as the riders crossed the field. Uji did not speak until they were face to face, and the horses still and quiet. Emerald champion, Uji said, his voice barely above a whisper, his steely gaze showing none of the deference of his words. Welcome to Toshirambo. Lord Daidoji, we have come seeking neither hostilities nor hospitality. I come to see again the place my brother, Akoto Arasu, fell. Uji only nodded. Some Shiginja have come to me voicing concerns about troubled spirits. With the centuries-long vacancy of the office of the Jade Champion, heresies and sorcery fell under the purview of his office as well, but he dared not level such dire accusations so soon. Our Shiginja have not been troubled, the crane said, but come inside, see the city and its shrines for yourself. Totori nodded. Without another word, Uji turned and rode back toward the gate, his guests trailing behind him. They passed through thick walls, 
built solidly of stone and wood, designed to withstand a battering. Inside, servants relieved them of their horses, but not their weapons. Let me take you to the Shiginja, Champion Tatori, the Iron Crane said. Your retinue may stay here to tend to their horses. It was not so much an offer as a demand, but an endurable one. Tatori walked on with his guide through the narrow streets. The path they took was curious, twisting and turning through the city. Crane Bushi in full armor stood guard and marched on patrol, while Ashigaru sparred in a training ground. All paused to bow as he passed and kept their eyes down. Uji walked in silence, his route taking him past a shrine to Hachiman, fortune of battle. The arch gleamed red, freshly painted, the color of blood. Beyond it, the large shrine to Bishamon loomed. For generations, crane and lion warriors alike had entered the fortune of strength sanctuary to petition him for the fortitude to hold the city. They passed Golden Kamenu, built by Tatori's clan. The garden surrounding Bishamon's shrine was ordered and elegant, yet it lacked the beauty of the typical crane garden. Pine, bracken, and medicinal plants were cultivated there, by lion and crane in turn. Lord Dadoji, I would speak of worldly matters before we enter this sacred space. Totori kept his eyes ahead as they stopped on the path, though Uji's gaze lingered on him. You are ready for war, observed Totori. Again, the crane only nodded. The emperor forbids war between the great clans. We do not seek war, Uji said, but we expect it. The lion have withdrawn their forces. War is coming, champion, Uji said. We are ready, and that is no crime. The sun was sinking as they rode out of the city. The horses had been rubbed down and watered, and now they trotted with fresh vigor. Someone was watching him, but he did not look back to the walls. His eyes found the forest, where he had waited to join his brother's troops that day they tried to take the city, tall cedars swaying in the wind. Ankle-deep mist lay upon the ground, and it clung to those trees, wreathing them, hazy and ghost-like in the growing darkness. For a moment, the failing light seemed to glint off a single eye watching him from the trees. Then it was gone. There were no restless spirits here. The crane Shiginja had insisted on that. There were only memories. His brother's face with one eye glazed, one transfixed by the arrow that slew him. Tutore would carry that image with him forever, though the sound of Arasu's voice might fade from his mind. Still, he could almost hear it now. Like Zuko, Arasu would see only one path and call for vengeance. They were almost out of sight of the city. Another glint in the trees. It was not merely a memory. Someone watched them. Someone from the city? Or something else? Totori slowed his horse to a walk, and one of his companions moved to ride beside him, while the others hung back. Did you see it, Kagi-san? Totori asked. Zuriki's nod was barely perceptible. Daidoji? No. A scout, not from the city. A chill dread settled inside him that had nothing to do with the coming dusk and possibility of wandering spirits. Was an army marching on the city already? Find out whose, Totori said. Kagi slipped from his horse, 
leaving the beast trotting riderless as the samurai ran swiftly and silently into the trees. No scout or spy would evade Kitsuki Kagi, an adopted dragon who had learned their method. It was only a matter of time before the young man was named a fully-fledged emerald magistrate in his own right. Totori and his retinue rode on, as though nothing had occurred. He heard no marching feet, no creaking armor but their own, yet he expected each bend in the road to reveal a host of bushi on their way to Toshirambo. What would he say to them? And if it was an army, how were he and five samurai going to walk out of this alive? Could they rely on honor to protect them from a general ambitious enough to tempt a war? Had Suko persuaded his generals to reclaim it? Did the unicorn seek it as a trophy in a war against the lion? Had the desperation of the crab led them to wage war for jade? And surely the phoenix would never forsake their pacifist ideals and force their way into the city in search of ghosts? Until Kagi returned, these thoughts were but fears, useless to a samurai. Totori focused on his breath and the rhythm of the horse beneath him. Perhaps Uji had been right to prepare for war. Perhaps it was inevitable. Perhaps there would be new ghosts made upon that battlefield before long.